episode of Ranking Review is being brought to you from Edmonton, Alberta. Yep. And uh, I'm here with our, and our regular guest, Lee Beckman, in our dear, dear friend uh, Charlene's backyard to start with. I think this is going to be a pretty mobile episode. We may be doing pieces of this all over the place. It'll hopefully be a unique episode. Yes. Yeah. Um, before we get down to the business of the podcast, I think just for our own personal, you know, historical Canadian relevance, we should acknowledge that last night we attended the Tragically Hip concert in yeah. Edmonton on their final farewell tour. Yeah. And uh, it was profound and pretty awesome. It was emotional, that's that's for sure. Yeah. And so we had, this, we had this whole road trip out here, so we've been partying pretty hardy. We've been saying goodbye to the hip. Yeah. And we thought, just since we wanted to complicate things a little bit, why not try to record a podcast? <laughs> it must be <laughs> it done. It must be done. It must be done. Uh, well, you chose this list. It's good cop, bad cop. Not necessarily because, you know, there are good and bad cops in every one of these movies. But yeah. it explores the psychology of police work. 
Yeah. So it's a little bit of a different episode, but I'm curious why you chose this one. Well, first and foremost, it was really just the list. Uh, uh, as soon as I saw the list, I'm like, oh, 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 oh. <laughs> um, the three, there's really three really great cop thrillers in this list. Spoilers. Yeah. Uh, like, just like, wow. <laughs> one is like one of my personal faves, but I can acknowledge the two others that they are genuinely classic cop thriller films. So. But that, it was the list. Um, some personal favorites on board. It's not specifically the cops and robbers genre. Yeah, um, but I, I, I will say this: the, the other thing, the other thing that sort of sort of piqued my interest is I spent at least three summers and a bit of a, a bit of a year. Uh, granted, it was by law enforcement, but I got to work alongside real police officers. Yeah, and um, getting to know some of them through the day-to-day -day activities and also some of the. Um, interactions I had with them, which was were kind of dramatic and kind of fun, um, that cop movies really don't quite get a lot of the personalities in a lot of ways. Like it's 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 essentially also just an institution or a company where it has all kinds of people. Right. Uh, a lot of these cops are of course like very high testosterone, badass, cool as people, and there's really a whole gamut of personalities. Yeah. What we tend to see in the movies because they're yeah. the most compelling, right? Are yeah. The really driven, hot-headed, yeah. you know, yeah. I'm going to break all the rules to bring this person to justice yeah. cop. And that cop largely doesn't exist in the real world. Uh, yes and no. I think there are certain elements I've seen. Breaking all the rules in your investigation. If you break all the rules in your investigation, the guy doesn't go to jail. Yeah. And then you're not doing your job. You're not yeah. a good cop. But yeah. the movies never show us that. And typically the movies, the cops don't arrest yeah. the bad guy. They shoot yeah. the Hollywood guy. is definitely a very cartoon version of, yeah. the, of law enforcement is what I'm generally... I think we're both trying to say. Yeah, and it's interesting to me because yeah. movie movies in this list that I like. Yeah. For instance, End of Watch. Yeah. A lot of people said it's a very real cop movie. Yeah. I don't know that it is. It's a really entertaining cop movie. It's a fantastical cop movie. Yeah, but but again, I, I mean, I think that it both uh, it disrespects in a way what real law enforcement officers do. Yeah. Not that they aren't superheroes. I'm not saying that they don't do great things. Yeah. I also work with law enforcement. Yeah. But it's not as cut and dry. It's not as easy, and it's not as day to day chaotic as yeah. movies. You know, are compelled to make it. Yes. And police officers are human. Yes. And in most of these movies, this is why I went with the theme good cop, bad cop. Yeah. They're kind of portrayed as one or the other, right? Yes. They're either saving the world and ultimately altruistic, yeah. or they're just bullies with guns. Yes. Both of those exist to some yeah. degree in the in the world of law enforcement. Yeah. But the average cop is a lot more gray yeah. than you would believe. Yes. I firmly believe if you see the lights go up behind you yeah. and you're getting pulled over. Yeah. You've already either got the ticket or got the warning. Yeah. It's way easier to talk yourself into the ticket than it is to talk yourself out and of be, it. And be the sort of submissive, calm one saying, yes, yes, yeah, yeah. answer their questions as quickly as you can. But again, uh, in, 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 the, in the movie world, it's yeah. got to be black and white, and it yeah. just isn't. Yes. There are good cops, there are bad cops, and yeah. who those cops are change yeah. on a given day. Yeah. No, cops uh, on a whole is, is definitely an interesting subject. For those, I'm sure, like, what is the actual day today? It's the 31st of, of July, July, 2016, that we're recording, but it's not going to drop till September, likely. Okay, so anyways... Um, Basically, cops are all over the news in a lot of ways about basically that's institution that is, you know, damaging a certain section of society, and they've come under a lot of political fire. In the United States, 
cops are shooting a lot of black people. And then there was like, that that's fellow. That's why, why sugarcoated. Yeah, and right? then there are fellow that fellow in Toronto that yeah. was uh, I think strangled and beaten by who eventually died from police officers who had actually mental health I'm, issues. I'm certainly not saying that there aren't bad cops out there. Yeah. There, there absolutely are. I'm yeah. saying that they're the, the world that they exist in day to day is a lot more mundane and kind of perpetually humiliating in a lot of ways. <laughs> well, just look at it this way. Your job is to go to places where people are doing bad things. Yes. So you deal with bad people all you of the You are time. going in usually the wrong direction to solve the like to solve the problem where right? everyone else is going away from it. Yeah. yeah. You so deal I, with bad people all, all the time the, yeah. or, or mentally ill people yeah. or or you know just yeah. criminally, you yeah. know, leaning people all yeah. the time. And I think that just generally being around that environment all the time can have an effect on a person. Yes, absolutely. So absolutely. It's one of the highest professions that has PTSD and for good reason. And also what you tend to see, and I know this is definitely true <laughs> from what I have witnessed, yeah. uh, is this insular sort of, you know, systemic brotherhood or sisterhood or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. If, you, if you're a cop, if you're an RCMP, if you're yeah. a city police, everybody's got your back. Yeah. You have an entire group of people who default have your back, whether you're right or wrong. Yes. And that becomes very problematic, too. Yes. Anyway, Absolutely. there's a lot of things that we can talk yeah, about. Yeah, we've gone sort of like, whoosh, I love this conversation, though. But <laughs> we need to get back to the movies. Uh, what, is there anything else you want to say before? I no, I think we've already s- said too much. So I think we need to get on this. I think we need to start Good Cop, Bad Cop. Uh, I say Bring it. Um, the six movies that Lee Beckman and I are going to review today. We're going to talk about L.A. Confidential. Mm-hmm. To talk about a uh, sort of serial killer cop movie called Copycat. Meow. We're going to have a, a look at a interesting sequel called U.S. Marshals. Yeah. Uh, we are going to look at a sort of modern western called Copland. Yes. We're going to have a look at uh, Larry Fishburne <laughs> before he had changed his name. Lawrence. Lawrence. I miss Larry Fishburne. I miss Larry Fishburne. Too. Larry, Larry Fishburne was a really good stage name. Starring in a very compelling genre exercise called Deep Cover. I guess when you get a nomination, you can call yourself Lawrence. <laughs> I suppose. Uh, so yeah, we're going to talk about his movie, uh, and then we're going to wrap things up with End of Watch. Did I miss anything? Uh, you've got Copland. You've got Copland? End Don't of Watch. Them. You've got U.S. Marshals. You've got L.A. Confidential. You've got Deep Cover. And Copycat. And yeah, Copycat. I think you've got it all. we got all of them. Smack so down and get ready. Let's put the cuffs on it. They were three cops who had nothing in common. Freeze! Big V, what are you doing here? Hey, you know, man, keeping the streets safe, boys. One would do anything to get ahead. You're truly prepared to be despised within a department? Yes, sir, I am. One had his own brand of justice. How's it going to look in your report? It'll look like justice. That's what the man got. And one loved the spotlight. What exactly do you do on the show, Jack? I teach Brett Chase how to walk and talk like a cop. The Night Owl Massacre. This is a heinous crime that requires swift resolution. Six victims. One of them, one of our own. Interrogations will be led by Lieutenant Edmund Exley. I need some backup. Come on. All right, college boy, I'll help. Now, all of them are faced with solving one case. Don't move! I want confessions, Edmund. Oh, I'll break them, sir. These people are all in the morgue. And someone has to pay for it. There's something wrong with the night owl. They thought they had it all figured out. Anything bothering you about the Night Owl case? The fact that you guys won't let it get filed away. I killed nobody! But what started as a murder... Can you talk only to me on this one? ...became a mystery that could cost them everything. So here's why I have a great deal of respect for Mr. Curtis Hansen. 
I don't love all of his movies, to be honest, mm -hmm. but he makes very different movies. Well. Like, uh, this this period uh, sort of genre cop exercise uh -huh. with this high gloss on it, L.A. Confidential, uh -huh. uh, you'd think would be maybe done by an old school traditional director, but yeah. this guy also directed 8 Mile. This yeah. guy, you know, <laughs> also directed The that, Hand That Rocks the Cradle. And that card, mo that um, Blackjack movie with um, Drew Barrymore and Eric Bana. Right. Uh, Lucky, Lucky You. you. Yeah. I, I saw, I've seen chunks of it. He does different projects. No, he's, 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 he started, he got his roots in, in independent filmmaking. He's definitely a unique person who's managed to work within the studio system and create some of his movies. So, like, I'm, if my daydream about what it would be like to be paid to make film, you yeah. know, I probably think that I personally would be just happy being a genre filmmaker. I would make yeah. thrillers and horror movies and just be happy in my little corner. Yeah. I have a lot of respect for a director who can jump genres fairly comfortably. Yeah. And, you know, who are willing to show all the different sides. Yeah. The reason that L.A. Confidential is significant in his career is that I think it's far and away his best work so far. Yeah. <laughs> Don't to tip my hand. Super early in the review. But this is what is, what at the time, the only real star wattage it had when it came out, honestly, was Kevin Spacey, was Kevin Spacey and to a lesser extent, yeah, Kim, uh, Kim Basinger, Basinger yeah. in this uh, sort of flashy supporting role. We're already at the, talking, at the time that... The, the, are you the, hit, have you hit record? Yeah. Okay. Uh, when, by the time that Russell Crowe and uh, Guy Pierce show up yeah. uh, in this movie, they're no names. Yeah. And I think that's such a great win for the movie. When mm -hmm. we watched this, when this first came out, yeah. Russell Crowe wasn't Russell Crowe. No. And Guy Pierce hadn't starred in so many things that he was such a familiar face. Yeah. And James Cromwell is in this. Yeah. Yeah. Who's not like I mean he I know his name was on it, but Danny DeVito's also could have sold tickets. Yeah. But, uh, but again, Danny DeVito is not going to open a big <laughs> a movie necessarily on the strength of his name alone. In a uh, way, I think, that, I think that Russell Crowe and Guy Pearce was a gamble at the time. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And it was a gamble that paid off ridiculously well. A, it introduced, you know, the United States to two amazing Australian actors. Yeah. Yeah. And B, it made the climactic, you know, gunfight of the movie yeah. so much more exciting because yeah. it wasn't Bruce Willis and yeah. Mel Gibson. It yeah. was th There wasn't this default thing. Yeah. Where, where our, our protagonists were going to get to live through the movie. Yeah. And uh, this movie is beautifully shot and it's yeah. so full of style. I yeah. love it. Uh, yeah. Should we start talking about the plot? Well, the, another sort of ace up the sleeve that this production had was having megawatt, very creative producer Anon Milchlan. I, I'm sure I butchered his name, but th he d he's also he recently did The Revenant. Mm -hmm. um, he's done Fight Club. Um, I think he was also on Seven. Uh, he's got a whole list of very creative, edgy, sort of take your chances that Hollywood would have a very hard time. If, you know, LA Confidential is probably the last big budget film noir movie made uh, by a big budget studio. And it did uh, huge. It, it, yeah, yeah. It made its money back and it got critical love up the wazoo. And it earned both of those. Yeah. I think one of the things that I first think about when I think about LA Confidential, mm -hmm. it's based on a book by James Elroy, I want to yeah. say. Yeah. And, uh, he was an interesting cat in his own right. Yeah. He he really loves the movie, even though the adaptation is incredibly loose from his text. Well, it, they streamlined it for sure. What the movie takes from the book is that yeah. we have three main characters, essentially. Yeah. Yeah. We're introduced to uh, this idealistic, young, hot-headed Guy Pierce character. Yeah. We're introduced to this rough, tough Exley. kind what's of... It, what's, his, what's the full name? 
Desmond actually. Yeah. Yeah. And then we were introduced to Russell Crowe, who's like this Bud bully. White. Got this bully vibe to him. He's yeah. super powerful. He thinks with his fists. But, he but also, you can see that he's trying to be a good person. But he's al- and he's also smarter than he appears yeah. as well. And then we were introduced to Vincent, the Kevin Spacey character, who yeah. is sort of the celebrity cop who, you know, likes you know, likes the spotlight, likes the camera and sort of Yeah enjoys soaking up the power and the celebrity that comes with being a high profile but underneath that LA sort cop. of veneer is actually the, the heart and soul of a, uh, a fairly good man who well, has lost his way a little this bit. is what I'm trying to get to with these three characters it's mm-hmm. really interesting to me that when we meet all three of them mm-hmm. they're establishing scenes mm-hmm. we don't like them or we're not necessarily meant to like them off the hilt yeah First time we see Bud, he really violently beats the shit out of somebody. Yeah. The first time we see Exley, he's being complimented by everyone around him, but he yeah. seems to have his nose high up in the air. Like, yeah. Yeah. he's better than everyone. His yeah. dad was a super yeah. cop, and he came into this place a rookie thinking, default, yeah. he will be a super cop. Yeah. Whether and or not that's true, he yeah. comes in arrogant. Yeah. And, and then we have the Kevin Spacey, who's all flash and dash. And right? we get in- introduced to him basically the night of one of the biggest police scandals in the world, which he's a part of. Exactly. So all of them are sort of flawed characters. And when we meet them, we're given reasons not to like them. But by the end of the movie, I would argue we love all three of these characters. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. Well, they all become true heroes and investigators, and they're all forever changed by it. No, the fact that this guy actually adapted it is a bloody minor miracle. I have to give props to William Monaghan and also Curtis Hansen for essentially adapting, which was a very dense... I've never read the book, but I had, I've had I've known people and friends who have, and they said it's such a like slog and complex, it's and they did actually cut out like a lot, a lot of... Th- they streamlined a lot, apparently. I haven't, yeah. I haven't read the book either, but, I, but I, just I saw an interview with the, the author of yeah. the book, and he yeah. basically said they, they took the characters, they kept the characters, yeah. and to him that was the most important stuff. Yeah. They had the three-character structure, yeah. and basically the story of police corruption. Yeah. How it plays out in the book and how it plays yeah. out in the movie is different, yeah. but the characters are sincere. I'm going to say one of the best screenplay adaptations in the past ten years. It, like, it is that good. Uh, and it really sort of, you know, it was the sort of a breaking out for William Monaghan, who, of course, you know, nothing's gone on and become a writer-director, also responsible for The Departed. Nice. So, you know, his words along with Hanson. Yeah. Uh, so basically, what the script, which is very complex to get into, even in the film version, is mm-hmm. it has to do with police corruption in Los Angeles. Essentially, in sort of yes. The golden age of Hollywood. Yeah. And uh, the script has to do with a mass shooting that happens in a diner. Yeah. But it also has sort of a ripple effect into other things. Uh, most interestingly, uh, a sort of high-class brothel run by David Strathairn, mm-hmm. where they take prostitutes. And you've also missed a brutal fight at the beginning of the, yeah, the film as well. Let me get there. Okay. Like the the he he makes prostitutes look like superstars. Yes. Yes. This is the angle that where we get Kim Basinger into the yes into the into the movie. Yes. Um, and just the casual corruption of the Kevin Spacey character leads, leads to the death of a young actor. And Kevin Spacey feels personally responsible for it. Mm-hmm. And as a result, he decides to start digging around. Yep, and that's how it all begins. And this starts a domino effect that basically has a huge and devastating effect on the Los Angeles Police Department. Yeah. So yeah, I guess that's the, the script in broad strokes. Yeah. Um, you've got a superstar. At this time, you could call Kevin Spacey a superstar. And he was definitely he was definitely the big name on the ticket. And no. then two, you know, 
Australian actors, one who would be a superstar soon. Yeah. I do think you'd watch this movie differently today, knowing who Russell Crowe is. Yeah. You might feel that this Bud's was character sort of was Russell Crowe's coming out party in a lot of ways. As he'd well. been in a lot of movies, but this was his most high profile. Yeah, he'd know. been sort of one of the a character actor among studio films. Yeah, there's a lot of payoffs in the movie. Mm -hmm. uh, when we are when we have a reveal that one character that we thought would be was, was a good guy is a bad guy, yeah. it happens very shockingly and it affects us deeply and emotionally. When we lose one of our main characters, yeah. it's like this shocking, devastating moment. Yeah. It's where we're halfway through the movie, and there are three main characters to the movie when we start, yeah. and they all get equal screen time until yeah. you know <laughs> one of them disappears suddenly, mm -hmm. and. I can't, like, the dramatic punch of that. And the fact that the movie does actually have some serious stakes. They they do things that surprise me. Mm -hmm. The whole movie opens being narrated by Danny DeVito. Yeah. And when you have a narrator in a movie, that sort of device, mm -hmm. to me, always makes that character relatively safe. Yeah. He's a witness. He's who we're hearing the story from. Yeah. And yet, two-thirds of the way through the movie, but spoilers... Danny DeVito's character is killed off. He's beaten to death, essentially. Yeah. yeah. So, <laughs> mm -hmm. you would not, I sure wasn't seeing that coming. And that yeah. wasn't certainly the first scene that I didn't see coming. So, but usually I don't mind spoilers, but for this movie, I really am <laughs> just being a little bit more cautious than usual. Yeah, because for people who haven't seen this movie, you, you really need, I think, uh, right now to hit pause <laughs> and watch, watch it. LA Confidential and then come back. Yeah. But, yeah, yeah. Well, we do have a spoiler, so if you want to talk about it, we can. But, uh, yeah. The corruption that uh, is in the police force sort of leads to this framing mechanism in which the, the Guy Pearce character sort of turns into a hero cop. Yeah. And he smells a rat. He smells a loud rat. Yeah. And uh, much like the Vincent character, he can't not scratch that itch. Yeah. Right? Oh, yeah. Well, all three of them get a giant itch underneath their craw. Yeah. And uh, their lives, you know, dramatically intersect. And they soon realize that not only do they want to be around each other, they really need to because yeah. the forces around them start closing in. Russell Crowe Crow gets in close with his uh, commanding officer, um, the guy from Babe. Uh, James, Cromwell. James Cromwell. I'm glad that you mentioned James Cromwell because I wanted to talk a little bit about him. Yeah. He's had such a wonderful acting career. He's sort of one of those sort of secret actor man crushes I have. <laughs> he's that, that good. Um, spoilers, he's one of the people, in fact... He's, I, he's, he's, he's one of the very corrupt cops. He's yeah, arguably yeah. the big bad of the he, movie. He is very much the big bad of the movie, and it's such a great villainous turn to give a sort of a character actor like him a villain role I, I just in some ways couldn't see it coming especially since before this he was the farmer in Babe yeah. and he usually has these sort of nice nice humble father he's uncle got father. a gentle countenance to yeah. him you want to believe but him but his menace is terrifying yeah well and this is the thing with the Russell Crowe character he gets in good with his new cat with his captain and yeah. uh his captain's basically showing him a lot of trust, saying we're going to do a few things that are not on, yeah. you know, not on the books. Yeah. We have this little house where we do private interrogations, yeah. and if we're looking for a cop killer and we need to beat an answer out of somebody, mm -hmm. we take him to this house, and you're going to be the guy who does the beating. But I'm the chief of police. I'm standing next to you while you do it. You're yeah. covered, right? Yeah. So, in one hand, Bud is like thinking that this is good, a good thing. He's yeah. He's all about punishing evil, right? Yeah. He's all about punishing crime. Yeah. He doesn't feel too many, too much ethical qualms about beating people. Yeah. But he does start to question who these people are, are and why they're being beaten. Yeah. And if, at the end, he is, in fact, still doing police work. Yeah. Is he helping to break an investigation? Or, or is he actually, you know... Helping commit a crime. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And that is the itch that he gets. Yeah. Three flawed characters, three guys itching. 
Yeah. And that unspools the entire LA police force. Yeah. Um, and I gotta say, it ends with one of my favorite gunfights in film history. Mm. It's not as, say, technically brilliant as, I don't know, uh, the De, gunfight pa- De Palma's gunfight at the end of The Untouchables or Scarface. It's not, like, as crazy and uh, elaborate as the heist scene in Heat. Oh. But as far as the just the intenseness and me not knowing who's going to take a bullet yeah, and really not knowing if this is going to end well. Yeah. Like, in a way, it would have still been an, a, a good movie if, like, yeah. the smoke had cleared and the corruption sort of continued. Like, yeah. it was sort of a, a novel about how these guys were trying to push a, a boulder up a mountain, yeah. you know? Yeah. Uh, and noir novels don't always guarantee the happy ending. Yeah. Right? You don't know how it's going to play out. Yeah. And, like I say, Russell Crowe was not a superstar. Mm. Guy Pierce hadn't been in a lot of movies. Yeah. Like, it, it was it was an intense I remember very clearly watching that shootout in the yeah. theater and yeah. it almost felt horror movie like the stakes to it felt mm. so real to me mm-hmm. I was emotionally invested mm-hmm. in a big way and mm-hmm. that's what you want with yeah. cinema yeah so uh, I love LA Confidential and I think everyone should watch it <laughs> is there anything else you want to say about LA Confidential well I, I do want to say something I didn't like about LA Confidential All right. Now, I'm a big fan of the film noir genre, you know, and I think a lot of classic filmmakers are, at least know of it. Um, and when you're going to do a classic film noir, one of the sort of, you know, sort of stipulates or, the, you know, things that you have to do is create, you know, it's sort of the definition of motion picture. You know, it's how you shoot the movie in a lot of shadow and fog and a lot of, you know, dark, well, shades more than anything else, that more than colors. For the uh, Curtis Hansen, for, uh, for the reason of you know he didn't want the sort of visual stuff in the background to distract from the actors in the story. That's why he did it. Shot in a natural light. Right. Him, the DP, did that. But if you you know to me, if you do film noir, you know you, even like Bound by the Wachowski brothers, uh, you know has that cool. It has that sort of color palette. It was um, definitely a choice, though. Yeah, like, you know, it's he, a choice. It's he wanted one. to spotlight the characters and the actors, not the cinematography. Yeah. I, and it was set in the 50s, so it was yeah. going to be lush and beautiful anyway. Yeah, I mean, the sets were going to at least overpower when any sort of... Uh, how the colors were, you know, at least chosen for this movie. I've but seen the Top Hat movie with the rooms full of smoke and the yeah. shadows across people's faces a lot. Yeah. I think part of the thing I personally like about the movie is that it's sort of self... It consciously steps away from that while still successfully being noir. See, I, I'm not I'm not denying that it, you know, it, it has that film noir feel, but to me, it's just it, one of those things that you, it, you, you gotta do it. You, and, you need that. And it was it. distracting to me. Cause it, it, you know, even... The, it, I noticed it the most when... Um, Exley and um, White go back to Pers- uh, Paget's house, right. Pierce Paget, and find him dead. You, I, I, that whole sequence to me needed to be shot in that sort of smoky black and white. You, you know, when you're doing film noir, the villains, when you first meet them, you know, you stereotypically have that sort of dark shadow, you know, half their faces covered, at least at one point in the movie. I think that they were working a little subtler than that. We didn't want to know who the villain was when he Yeah, oh him. yeah, no, no. If James Cromwell had come in like Darth Vader, I think the impact would have been much less. Well, at least have that shot when he, you know, commits that one act in the movie Yeah. Uh, to me. But that's my only complaint about the movie. That's that's those the strike I would have about it. Right. The movie is just it's pure American brilliance. Yeah. <laughs> it's a great great movie. If I was to give a personal complaint, and it's mm-hmm. not even really a complaint because I think she's fine in the movie. Yeah. I think that Kim Basinger, you know, as this prostitute who's trying to do the right thing but doesn't yeah. always do the right thing, yeah. and is just sort of a victim of her times in a yeah. lot of ways. Yeah 
it's a I think one of the least interesting parts of this fairly complicated screenplay for yeah, me yeah. and that's me being a broken record the romantic angle almost always I find them the least interesting yeah but I gotta say I was a little bit surprised that she won an Oscar for it well it was definitely one of those here's for their body of work instead of um, even if it was a cumulative Oscar like based on what what is Kim Basinger ever really blown us away in well exactly I mean but same reason with Melanie Griffith or you know, Antonio Big Package Bendettis or <laughs> or whoever. Well, like Melanie Griffith had her moment, she, like where she was. You know, everybody thought she was awesome and working girl and a few yeah. other things. Kim Basinger is not terrible, but yeah. she is not exceptional. Yeah. And I I would carry through with that here. She does the job very well, yeah. as good as I've seen her in a lot of ways. Yeah. And you know, sh- she gets slapped and then she cries, and yeah. that's the role of the dame in these noir movies. Yeah. I I I guess. I don't. I wouldn't take her award away from her. I'm yeah. just. I'm not sure what it was about the performance that everybody latched onto yeah. that I somehow didn't. I think if you haven't seen L.A. Confidential, you should see L.A. Confidential. And I think it's one of these movies that's going to age super well yeah. because it's a period piece. There's nothing that largely you know. You haven't really talked much about Kevin Spacey. I mean, you should have talked about his character, but not about his performance. Well, uh, like I, said, I mean, like he's, he's doing his best Dean Martin. It's the flash and dash role. Yeah, it's the hey, yeah, see, I'm cool. Look at the lights and shows. Mm-hmm. I mean, I don't want to underrate. I think that he does a really good job, and we do definitely see him make this conscious decision to walk away from that. Yeah, there's a scene where he gets his payday for getting yeah. one of those photographs yeah. for Danny DeVito, yeah. and he buys himself a shot to celebrate. Yeah, and then he leaves the bar with the shot undroke, un, un, untaken, yeah. and the bill he just received just sitting on top of the shot. Yeah, he didn't take his drink. He didn't take his payday. Yeah, he feels he's gone too far, and he needs to fix it. Yeah, uh, and that's that's you know that's the worm that that character turns on, and I think Spacey plays it very well. It, it was in the in the days where everything Kevin Spacey was in was just amazing for a while. There, yeah. Usual Suspects. Uh, he showed up in Seven. He yeah. showed up in this like. American Beauty Swimming with Sharks like he, yeah. he was just in a, a string yeah. of ridiculously good movies he was like the good luck charm for any movie in the 90s yeah. I think it was about somewhere around Pay It Forward where yeah. things started to go a little bit left yeah. but yeah. I still think he's a good actor and it, yeah. like uh, if you love Kevin Spacey this is another classic Kevin Spacey role yeah the great thing about life on the street is you know how it's gonna be it's always the same. It's always getting worse. Hasta la vista! On these streets, one color rules. Green. It's not 10 kilos we want, we want 20. Listen, you're taking a lot away for a guy we hardly know, John. Where are you moving this stuff? He's gonna get you busted. No, he won't. On these streets, nothing's what it seems to be. Is that our bust? Yeah. Well, who is he? <laughs> Listen, John here got busted, but he kept his mouth shut. On these streets, he'd be the perfect criminal if he wasn't the perfect cop. Did you ever take a look at your psychological profile? You score almost exactly like a criminal. I'm looking for somebody who will go under and stay under. What does he have to do? Buy drugs, sell drugs, set up the people that I don't want to bust. Because there's only one rule in this game, John. Don't blow your cover. I wish I could say that I like love I think when I think of Bill Duke yeah that I think of all the fine films that he has directed mm. but for me it's all about Predator <laughs> when I think of Bill Duke I think of this bald sweaty dude crawling around in the underbrush trying to avenge Jesse Ventura's death <laughs> I'm gonna carve your name, name into, into him. him I'm gonna carve your name into 
But if you didn't know this, uh, Bill Duke is not just a character actor, and a very good character actor, yeah. by the way, but yeah. a quite gifted director. Yeah. And of the films that I've seen, I think that uh, my personal favorite is Deep Cover. <laughs> it stars Larry Fishburne. Yes. That's Larry, Larry. Fishburne. <laughs> Larry. Hats up to Larry. You broke her heart. <laughs> I could go on another one of yeah. my diatribes about how Hollywood res- does not respect the name Larry. <laughs> and that, like, Lawrence Fishburne had to change it to Lawrence because he felt he wasn't being taken It's serious. all about the Oscar nod cred. God damn. But uh, I'll move past it. Okay. Uh, it was, it's Are another right one the, of these. You okay there, Larry? I'm calming down. Okay. okay. It, I think this was mid-90s this came out? 92. It was 92, not, so it's I, pretty early. This yeah. is fairly hot off of Boys in the Hood and stuff like that for Lawrence Fishburne. Then, like, yep. Um, and he is a really magnetic screen presence, and he totally deserved to be headlining an action movie. And and, and seeing this movie kind of makes me wonder why he didn't hasn't done more of them. Yeah. Um, he is hired by a Canadian actor, Charles Martin Smith, to go undercover and yeah. take down some drug cartels. Yeah. Initially. Yeah. Um, and uh, he meets a very interesting and colorful cast of criminal characters. Yeah. And. Uh, this is very much a modern noir exercise, as you were talking about the hard shadows and the stylistic lights. It's also a, uh, a big loving hand to the black exploitation flicks of the seventies and er, in late sixties as well. But the style in here is a very in your face, right? Yes. in a good way. In oh a yeah, good yeah, way. yeah, yeah. Uh, but but that what you were saying, you were missing that in, yeah. in LA Confidential. Well, yeah. you're not going to miss that here. Oh no, it's I love. It's I, 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 I love the colors and, and how the hues and are all set within this movie. This movie is a gorgeous film to look at in a lot of ways yeah. and I like it I like it a lot yeah. uh, I love Bill Duke so much though. before <laughs> before we get to the rest of Deep Cover I just want to say do you remember that scene from the Limey <laughs> there's <laughs> only one thing that I don't understand the and one the thing, thing is any goddamn word coming, coming out, out of your, of your mouth, mouth. <laughs> yeah. Bill Duke you know I, I really do think Bill Duke should get like a, an honorary Jerry Award I, re- I really, really do because <laughs> what I've seen of the man <laughs> I'm a fan of the actor and the director, yeah. so keep making, keep keep doing what you're doing, brother. Uh, yeah, I never did see a Rage in Harlem, but uh, there is that Hoodlum movie. Yeah. yeah, which I wanted to like more than I did, if I'm honest. But it, it's got a lot of style. But anyways, um, let's talk about Deep Cover. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, it's got one of my boys in it. I've got this man crush on Jeff Goldblum, and he keeps coming up on the podcast again and again and again. Yeah. This is a really interesting role for him, because yeah. sort of much like uh, the Fly remake when we talked about, he is not the obvious choice No, I, at I, all. I, one of the things that I really love about Deepcomer is they went to almost like against, against typecast and gave Jeff Goldblum a chance as being the sort of evil antagonist. And his journey to, you know, to the when he's finally basically just a cold-blooded killer yeah. um, is an actually interesting journey in this film, Deep Cover. You get the feeling like he was always a bit of a sociopath, but his dalliance with the world of organized crime made him bloom, yes. <laughs> right? Yeah. He was you know, probably always a little bit dangerous and a little bit off, but Too the more power that he got into, the more money, the more everything. Yeah. I also just like the subtlety with which his character is handled. He's a very racist character. Yes. But he's not racist in the way that the, typically you see racism portrayed in film as in, I hate black folks. Yeah. He's racist in the way that he treats them as lesser people, like, without thinking about it. He has this whole speech he gives to mm-hmm. the Lawrence Fishburne character about seeing him dealing drugs. It was yeah. like he was this animalistic cheetah creature out yeah. there on the streets. and. Yeah. 
<laughs> Fishburne character gets really upset yeah. by it, yeah. and Jeff Goldblum seems confused. Like he doesn't yeah. seem to understand. Yeah. That what he's saying is deeply offensive, offensive and right? racist. Yeah. Usually, when you see a racist person in the movie, it's like a yeehaw, I hate yeah. them black folk, yeah. right? Yeah. And uh, I'm not saying <laughs> how dare you misbetray racial yeah. people, but I think that it you should show it as it is. It's a lot yeah. more complicated than just rednecks being rednecks. Yeah. There's like, I love the fact that, he, you know, the Fishburne character is visibly annoyed with the character at certain points. It's yeah. like, careful, David. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> careful, David. You, you really <laughs> should be careful how you talk to people. <laughs> <laughs> this, this is going to play out badly. If not yeah. from me, somebody yeah. else. You know? Yeah. And he's not wrong. Right? Yeah. No, no. It's almost like he's t- telling his friends, like, just do, woo, keep it down. Yeah. And there is, in the same way, even though, you know, he's undercover the whole time, a strange yeah. respect and rapport built They do love each characters. other, yeah. You know, in it, a way, they, yeah. they respect each other anyway. Yeah. Like, they, <laughs> they're both uh, who they are, mm-hmm. I guess, in mm-hmm. their own way, mm-hmm. and uh, are thriving in this, this harsh environment. So, yeah. uh, there's a few things in the movie that I think are a little bit heavy-handed. Okay. The most egregious, unfortunately, has to do with, like, the opening two minutes of the film. Oh, okay. <laughs> um, we find the origin story of the Lawrence Fishburne character, and he's literally in the car outside of a liquor store on Christmas Eve. Yeah. And his dad goes in to rob the liquor store. And is holding the money, showing his son through okay, the Okay, so the, that's the a little cheesy. Look at me, look at me, this is See, what you're going to end up. I'm not even done, Lee. Then he gets shot, yeah. and there's blood on the money in his yeah. hands. Yeah. And he hands it to his son. Yeah. And Lawrence Fishburne holds on to this blood-stained money for the whole... That, that's pretty fucking hard. That's on the fucking nose. Yeah. But like, to every part of it. The fact that it was on Christmas, the yeah. fact that his father was having this... He was doing this crime, but saying yeah. that it was wrong that he was doing this crime. Yeah. He was admonishing his son that you shouldn't yeah. do what I'm doing as he was doing it. Like, yeah. Uh, it was a weird tone to start the movie on because everything that followed it was so much better, yeah. right? Um, but I think, but that's everything you needed to know about that character in a lot of ways is that's in why the it, most simplistic first draft. Okay, but here, here, here's where you and I are going to really sort of start to you know differ and argue because I think Deep Cover is one of the best openings ever to any crime thriller, and I want to talk about the screenplay for a second, Michael Tolkien, uh, Michael Tolkien but also Henry Bean, but the true unsung hero, and Bill Duke was the genius who thought of this. He liked this hip-hop poet writer, this former ex-pimp called Iceberg Slim, to do the narration that Fishburne eventually reads. Right. And it has to in my humble opinion, one of the best opening lines ever to any screenplay. Fuck Orson Welles and Citizen Kane. You start your movie like this. So gather round as I run it down and unravel my pedigree and then there's a pause my father was a junkie one of the best opening well-written lines to any unfortunately any. followed by just a terrible scene I'm sorry. i agree i agree that it is pretty melodramatic and heavy-handed and there's a few other things in the movie that are on the nose i think that uh what's the character that bald guy that they have to climb over uh okay. Uh, he's this. I, can't, I don't have IMDb in front of me, but you don't even have to of, kill. Yeah, he's the middleman that they have to get through to get to the big bad. Yeah, yeah. and the evil and the casual shittiness that he is portrayed yeah. is the kind of thing that I've seen in a dozen movies. I no, knew, the, there are definitely archetypes in in isotropes. There's or, a few sorry. characters that, from the second that they were introduced, yeah. I knew that they were going to die. Yes, uh, 
There's another scene which is still very powerful, but I've always had a problem with. Yeah. Where Lawrence Fishburne has is tasked to do a hit, mm-hmm. and he goes into the bathroom, follows this dude into the bathroom to yeah. execute him. Yeah. And the dude in the movie, I can only think of one other movie where a character yeah. is this unbelievably, you know, careless yeah. with his own life. Yeah. He turns around from the urinal to see a guy with a gun. Yeah. And then proceeds to piss on the guy's shoes and tell yeah. him basically you don't have the guts to shoot me. Yeah. In spite of the fact that he's unarmed. Yeah. It's one of the least credible things. Like they should have shown him smoking crack or something before he went into the bathroom because yeah. this is a character who does not think that he must think he's indestructible. He's, he's pretty much un- yes. Well, he's unredeemable, cocky, and arrogant, and it's one of the things that you know leads to his death. I, I just don't believe anybody walks into a bullet like that, welcomes a bullet like that. I just uh, I, have, I, think, I didn't believe it. I, I, I think there are people out there. End of Watch certainly believes it. So <laughs> well, uh, death by cop is something that gets addressed, in it, but that's a different thing. This guy didn't want to die. He just accepted it. He almost welcomed it. Possibly. What else would you? He stepped to a guy with a gun to him, armed only with his. I think that dick. scene happens almost every single day, Lawrence. Yeah. Well, for me, it's powerful on Lawrence Fishburne's end because yeah. it's the first time he's killed a guy. Yeah. And he's a cop yeah. who just killed a guy. Yeah. So Lawrence Fishburne kills it in that scene. Yeah. I don't believe the gangster at all. I don't know. I don't know what it was. I just didn't believe him. There's a few little mo- scenes like that. And again, I'm looking hard to find threads to pull in deep yeah. co- cover. But yeah. there's every now and then a scene will happen um, where. I just, or, or a character will be introduced where I totally understand where this character is. Yeah. Uh, the, the guy that uh, is initially working for the g- criminal organization who's a loudmouth, who ends up getting beaten to death with a pool cue. Yeah, uh, yeah, Roger Guenmiro, I'm yeah, totally I'm killing his name. Anyway, he was, well, good portrayal, yeah. but from the second you met that guy... Oh, no, he's, well, I mean, he's introduced, even in the monologue, you know, yeah. he's going to live not past the month. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and that, same that, thing. that's how that character that comes advertised. You know he's going to die. Yes. Yeah. Same thing. Like I said, with the the guy that they're trying to basically get through to get to the big bad. Yeah. Uh, how cartoonishly evil he becomes, and what, how Charles Martin Smith. No, no, no. The the bald dude with the mustache who gets thrown out of the limousine. Anyway, I found that character much like the Eddie character. I totally knew the Felix. Character. Felix. I could totally, Felix Barbosa. I totally knew what was going to happen with Felix's character arc within about 30 seconds of him opening his mouth. Yeah. And in a way, I, I, I still enjoyed the movie, but I, I would have liked to have been more surprised by some of the, the, the way it played out. What the movie kills at is the performances and the style. Mm-hmm. And it has that to such a great degree that mm-hmm. you have to watch Deep Cover. If you yeah. like this style of movie, mm-hmm. it's a great cop movie. And... Uh, you know, in spite of the fact that it's, it's written by a white dude who wrote the player, well, two two white dudes, yeah, yeah, yeah. He, uh, he's got some spotty th- things on his track record, but yeah, I, I do think it was a sort of brilliant choice. And this is Bill Duke did this of getting in that narration. Mm-hmm. I think it definitely legitimized the movie. I know one thing you've sort of criticized the movie as criticized the movie as is it's trying really hard to be. Um, uh, real and authentic, but it's written by a white guy. This <laughs> yeah. movie is done in the style, and is very much done by uh, black exploit in the black black exploitation sort of crime thrillers like yeah. Superfly and The Harder They Come. Yeah. Um, one other thing I want to bring to attention is Clarence William the Third. He's mm-hmm. a character actor who's also had a bit, of a, a bit of career. The scenes with him and Fishburne yeah. are so good. Yeah. yeah, they're you know 
you could totally tell that they also, in a very short amount of time, understand and respect each other. But he definitely uh, fulfills that role I was talking about yeah. that Hollywood has for cops. Either they're utterly altruistic and a hero, or, yeah. or they're deeply flawed, right? Yeah. Uh, the Lawrence Fishburne character is the only one that's allowed to ride the line. Yeah. Charles Martin Sh- Smith is a piece of shit, right? Yeah. And Charles Williams III yeah. is, is, is godly. He's practically a saint, yeah. right? Uh, and I think it falls guilty of those cliches, but it's embracing the genre. It knows that it's a noir thrill- thriller, and it yeah. loves that it's a noir thriller. And so yeah. it's hard not to love the movie for that. Yeah. Um, one thing I, I do want to talk about, and this is sort of the, the sort of film nerdy thing in me, is do you know what like a, a transition is like like a like a wipe or a cut or yeah, a dissolve? Sure. Yeah, yeah. Deep Cover has one of the best uh, transition wipes ever done in film. It's of a homeless person. <laughs> that 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 whole transition cut is just it's fucking well, and brilliant. It's, it's <laughs> full of nice like very like again very very self conscious but very good visual flourishes, and yeah. I, I appreciated it. I don't know, man. Like I, I said, it's it's in the noir tradition, and it's happy to be there. Yeah. And I welcome it. <laughs> I, I mean, I just... Fuck Orson Welles right in the puckered sphincter, man. This is fucking deep cover. You're fucking welcome. <laughs> uh, that might be overstating it, but please watch deep cover. What turns on a killer is the suffering and death of another human being. And as his determination builds to take another life, he plans in obsessive detail what props he'll bring. What knots he'll tie. Let me ask you guys something. What turns you on? A criminal psychiatrist. There's a serial killer out there who strangled three women. He's going to do it again. A homicide detective. Would you work with us on this? You're kidding, right? I do not want you discussing this case with her in any shape, way, or form. It's the Boston Strangler. You're telling me this guy's copycatting a serial killer's been dead for... 20 years. You're looking for an intelligent white male, 20 to 30 years old, socially functional. Everything's different. Different guy. He's switched from DeSalvo to Bianchi and Bono, the hillside strangler. One man is copying the most notorious killers in history, one at a time. He's sending you letters like he's daring us to nail him. If he wants to be famous, he has to be caught. I'm death and life to you, Doc. We know that Mr. Cullen was safe in San Quentin last night, so how come his book shows up under the mattress? Together, two women must stop him. The man who has killed five women in the city was just in your apartment. Before he kills again. All I know to do is change your locks, tighten up your security, and pray. See, the thing about this copycat movie uh, is it's one of the many 90s psycho killer movies. There's so many of this template uh, that you really needed to bring something to distinguish yourself. Um, I think what Copycat is attempting to bring to distinguish itself is sort of the super powerful female characters, here represented by Holly Hunter and Sigourney Weaver. Um, A lot of the stuff that we talk about as far as, you know, the elements of this serial killer who's victimizing this one particular psychiatrist who is so uh, horrified by a previous experience that she's become agoraphobic. She doesn't like leaving her house, mm. and uh, she will give advice on cases. But she, you know, is sort of locked into her own little corner of the world and her own sort of existence. Despite that, because this character is played by Sigourney Weaver, she still comes off as a very strong, capable person. She's not like helpless or anything like that. Mm-hmm. She's just been traumatized. Um, 
So I think that in a lot of ways, Copycat, if we're honest, is another serial killer, you know, sort of investigative movie. Uh, does the performances and the sort of feminist casting do anything to elevate it? Is, I guess, where I would start. Well, I think it was ironically in ill-advised to call your serial killer movie Copycat when it is just very much a mishmash and copycat of <laughs> other serial killer movies. Um, I'm going to say no. Don't get me wrong, I think there's some really good performances in here. I think Holly Hunter actually, when watching it a couple times over, gives a very layered performance. And I've always liked Holly Hunter. She's a very, very talented actor. Yeah. And I love her character in this. And Sigourney Weaver is good as well as the agoraphobic doctor as well. But you're right, this comes at the sort of tail end of the big serial killer decade. Yeah. Um, and it's When this movie came out, new. even if you hadn't seen this movie, you'd kind of seen this movie. Exactly. Now, and now the, 20 years later, maybe that's not as much of a problem for the movie, since the serial killer genre is not quite as popular. Mm. But, again, it's less of a big impressive thing to have strong female characters in your movie. So if that's what this movie's anchoring to. I think the other thing about that, and I think it's most reflected in the Holly Hunter character here, mm -hmm. is in this sort of proto-feminist uh, movie mm -hmm. where in order to show a female as being strong, mm -hmm. she just takes the role of a man mm -hmm. and does everything in that role that a man would do. Mm -hmm. Right? She's, mm -hmm. She never preoccupied with her nails or anything shaky mm -hmm. or bullshitty like that. And mm -hmm. I'm not asking for it. But what I am saying is that there is a tangible difference between men and women. Mm -hmm. And we should see that reflected in her character. And that was one of the angles. What is the difference between a hard-ass male cop and a hard-ass female cop? And I don't think this movie answers that. Well, and also I don't think the Holly Hunter character isn't exactly a hard-ass cop to begin with. Um, she's her own character. Um, she's her own thing. She's very sweet and very nurturing in, in a lot of ways. But at the same time... I always looked at her face going in when her character enters the room and she's already sized up every single character in that room. She's the smartest person in the room in a lot of ways until she meets a Granny Reaver who's very much a match but is also a very broken character. I see a bit of a Napoleon complex going on with Holly Hunter too. She's so small compared to everyone around her. Yes. So she feels like she has to like match other people or, yeah. or overmatch, you know? Yeah. But she does. Again, I think it's a good performance. But I she think does it I in a very. It she's done it. She does it in a very confident and sly way. I think in a lot of ways, she does sort of kill a lot of people with their kindness, <laughs> which is well. No, if you look at how you know how she communicates with other characters, she's very sweet and almost nurturing. Even the scene with Will Patton after uh, the certain tragedy has occurred, uh, and she knows the, the history, the, just the history of that that of that particular relationship. Mm -hmm. um, she's very sweet and understanding and very patient with that the you know the good character actor will the good character actor that is will Patton yeah. and that uh, specific scene and that was a hard role to play too because mm -hmm. if you didn't have a good actor like if will Patton wasn't playing that role we would yeah. have just dismissed him as the asshole character and, and yeah. that would be all we would get yeah he has reasons to have issues with Hunter's <laughs> character and she yeah. has reasons to have issues with him mm -hmm. but the, it's not black and white necessarily or not yeah. as black and white as it seems when we start yeah 
So I know I appreciate that, and you're right. Uh, Holly Hunter's character is involved in this police shooting. It's a tragedy. She she does shoot the bad guy, but another cop and a friend of hers is killed mm-hmm. in the process, and mm-hmm. it's devastating to her. And we see her, you know, see, take th- that hit. Yeah, but there, this is some sort of lazy screenwriting and very 101 screenwriting in a lot of ways. There's a, there's a couple of side stories that really does nothing to forward the overall plot, mm-hmm. uh, and it starts off right in the opening scene where we see them with. Um, uh, Holly Hunter and Dermot Mulroney, Dermot Mulroney having that whole um, the target practice scene where Mulroney obviously goes for the kill and she goes for the wounding. We know that this is going to come factor in at some point in the screenplay. Yes, the payoff. Of people. Yeah, yeah. The payoff, of course, is really sort of this useless scene at the police station that, of course, eventually convinces Holly Hunter that yes, at some point she will have to take the shot and it's completely unnecessary and unneeded and really does nothing here's a movie cop cliche that is going to come up again yeah unfortunately yeah and the partner that they go out of their way to make us like yeah is going to die yes right yes and like we've seen that so many times yeah that to attempt to do that <laughs> you know again yeah. it just seemed like yeah we we know not to get attached to that character yeah. right yeah. it's just like we've seen we've seen this movie before yeah we know the role that he has to play yeah right? and at that point not that I was doubting it before but we all know that Holly Hunter eventually is going to have to shoot shoot to kill shoot that of course our villain the serial killer the serial killer which is again is very male this is where I go back to right Mm. it's a very dude eye for an eye macho thing you know she tried to do it you know the good way and it didn't work so now she has to fucking conclusively kill him Mm -hmm. and again is that strong or is that just what any other dude in a cop movie would do I think that in order to do what would I still think it's a decent movie again I sound like I'm really heavy on it it's fine it's basically an okay serial killer thriller elevated yeah. by an excellent cast so I mean like it's totally watchable I've reviewed way worse movies for the podcast mm-hmm. but again I go back to this if you really want to make this a, a sort of a story about powerful women being powerful <laughs> um, mm-hmm. make them be powerful in a way that is different than you know John McClane you know mm-hmm. honestly other than her size and a couple of lines i don't think holly hunter's character is played any different than had it been done by bruce willis or some other you know typical cop player i think sigourney weaver is the interesting wild card and uh, i also want to talk about the surprise you know standout performance in the movie to me i wonder if you can guess what that is he's uh, a musician oh the, the harry connick jr harry connick jr who's pitch perfect as the other serial killer bringing the evil as the sort of serial killer that's sort of responsible for sigourney weaver yeah. uh you know turtling and and, and being a, a shut-in <laughs> yeah i would have never guessed that harry connick jr could have brought that level of menace mm-hmm. so so you know kudos to him <laughs> it's not a very big role but it, 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 it leaves an impression well it's the hannibal lecter role in a lot of ways here's the question i have for you though mm-hmm. at the end who has he written or writing that letter to that he's now sort of licking the envelope I presumed I, I took that to believe you know he's setting up other, another copycat killer somewhere right mm-hmm. the the copycat that we are dealing with mm-hmm. is not just copying this guy's crimes he's basically taking famous crimes throughout history and recreating them to taunt the uh, Sigourney Weaver played character. by William Mac- McNamara yeah um, and what I took from that is mm-hmm. that William McNamara, because he'd been in contact with the Harry yeah. Connick Jr., 
that Harry Connick Jr. had other fish on the line, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> he wanted to continue to fuck with Sigourney Weaver's character, and he was somehow finding a way to do that from prison. Okay, it's so a he, little bit silly and Machiavellian. So he is writing to another stranger, because that was the one thing, is like, I hadn't quite... You didn't? You didn't yeah, well, that's what I took from it. I could be wrong. That's what well, I took Well, probably what it is, because I didn't recognize the name to the person he was writing to, and I was kind of like... Yeah. What are you doing? And Basically, it, it he's going to continue to fuck with her. Sequel, please. Sequel, please. But okay. that didn't happen, right? Yeah, all right. All right. <laughs> okay, I get it. Okay, that sort of makes sense right now. No, Harry Connick Jr. is really, really good. He's. I think he's cast perfectly well. I think he had a great acting coach, and he hits it out of the park for that specific character. Yes, he is very menacing in that sort of hillbilly, redneck, psycho killer sort of way. Yeah. Um, and I think they did a good job of well, A, Sigourney Weaver's an amazing actress. I mean, I've talked about her. Oh, no. Past. Like, here's the thing. Holly Hunter and Sigourney Weaver are all really, really, really good. They did a good job of setting up her yeah. her trauma. We see what happens to her. She's lifted up off of a toilet seat, if I remember correctly, yeah. by her throat. Yes. <laughs> like, she was in the most sort of personal, safe, private place, and she gets attacked. She yeah. was even under police protection when that attack yeah. happened. Yeah. So she is unable to feel safe. Yeah. She's just not able to feel safe. Yeah. But Sigourney Weaver's e- able to play that mm-hmm. and still retain strength. It's a character who never feels safe but always retains strength. And I think that's a harder thing to balance than, mm-hmm. than, than you'd think, <laughs> right? Mm-hmm. So definitely worth watching for the performances. A little bit of an ouch to the script. Yeah, well, the director is John Emile. I don't, he's one of those uh, studio hire guns. Um, he's also responsible for that charming white classic, Up Close and Personal, you know, with rich white people problems and romance. Up Close and Personal. Uh, with Robert Redford and Michelle Pfeiffer. I don't Pfeiffer. think I ever saw it. I might, I might just go on the rest of my life without seeing you're, it. You're doing, you're, you're doing better than me. <laughs> Does that sound like a movie that would hit rank and review? Entrapment <laughs> and The Core are other ones I've never no. seen. I saw Entrapment and instantly forgot it. <laughs> the Core is almost like B-movie hilarious, but yeah. unintentionally so. And Entrapment is a movie that I saw but I have no, no memory, memory of. <laughs> I don't know. I get the impression that John Emile is one of those vanilla directors who makes very vanilla movies that uh, we've seen this story structure before and we know how it's going to begin you know and what's the middle and what's the end and that's kind of the same thing I got out of copycat it's it having seen my fair share of serial killer thrillers and this this felt like a Law and Order episode, really. A glorified Law and Order episode. But that said, if you like Law and Order episodes... <laughs> right, again, I, I have a hard time getting really furious with the movie. It just doesn't do anything to really make itself memorable. And uh, with it, this cast, you'd kind of maybe think it would be, right? The cast elevate what is a pretty mundane script. We all know how this is going to end. All the beats are very, very familiar. Um, I kind of like the fact that it's shot in San Francisco with a little nod to Hitchcock once in a while. This, of course, being a thriller. But it kind of feels like a burnt piece of bacon. That's, that's the way I, I sort of see it with sort of lazy side stories mm-hmm. with, you know, intermittent between some, you know, good acting beats by very, very talented people, which is too bad because I like Holly Hunter a whole lot and I like Sigourney Weaver and I do think they do good work here. Um, at the same time, and also Harry Connick Jr. is very good, and William McNamara is fine as our sort of young... doesn't have a lot to do, actually. We don't really see much of Yeah, I, I felt bad for him. I know Hollywood tried to make him into a leading actor for a while in the late 90s. And didn't happen. Mid-90s, and it just didn't happen. So it's like, oh, <laughs> I remember you. I remember Chasers. Yeah. So, yeah, no. Um, it's, ju- it's just, like I said, meh. Yeah. Even by the end, we all know that Sigourney Weaver's not going to die and that Holly, Holly Hunter, spoilers, comes save in the and day. saves yeah. the day. Yeah. So it's, it's just one of those, at that point, 
you just start looking at your popcorn and kind of yeah. going, hmm, is that it, a m M&M It delivers in, in the same limited way that your average romantic comedy will deliver, right? Mm -hmm. Where you go into the movie and you know there's going to be a pretty girl who can't decide between a boy who's wrong from her mm -hmm. and the boy who lives next door who's right next to her who's so perfect for her. <laughs> yeah. But what's going to happen? How can she resolve this? You don't need to watch the movie. We all know this movie before we watch it. And um, some people prefer romantic comedies. I tend to lean towards horror thriller movies. So mm -hmm. if this is like a fill time on a Sunday afternoon, you can do worse than Copycat. But you can do a lot better. Yep. Still got one prisoner unaccounted for. Mark Roberts. A daring escape. A cross-country manhunt. No one had seen anything like it. I have. All right, gentlemen, we're going to divide up and search every house, hospital, hotel, back road, and backwater for Mr. Mark J. Roberts. Shut! For Sam Girard and his team of U.S. Marshals. Did you ever make a fugitive arrest before? Yeah, but not about you. Nothing is what it seems. i got to find out who the hell Mark Roberts really is. Ex-U.S. Marines, Special Forces, ex-CIA, Black Ops. All right, heads up. No one can be trusted. I got set up from the word go. This is a ruthless killer who committed murder in cold blood. Because this time, the fugitive they're chasing... Give me a hand. I'd like to listen to you explain why your ruthless assassin keeps going out of his way to let people live. Is a government spy who knows too much. You're the great Sam Gerard. Yes, I am. And you always have to win. Yes, I do. So we're still well in the 90s here. Mm. Um, one of the last super tentpole, like, blockbuster hits for Harrison Ford before he kind of went through a long down phase uh, was The Fugitive, mm -hmm. which was a fairly exciting, well-made action movie that, as much as I inter was entertained by it, I think might have got overpraised a little bit. Okay. It got nominated for Best Picture. It was like an Oscar movie, and like mm. got, people got a little carried away with it. It's a completely fine action-adventure suspense film, mm -hmm. and it's grounded by two great performances from Harrison Ford and Tommy Lee Jones. Mm -hmm. But it making a, a metric fuck ton of money, you know, Hollywood decided we need a sequel. Mm -hmm. And so comes U.S. Marshals, which mm -hmm. basically takes Tommy Lee Jones and his whole crew uh, who were tasked with bringing in fugitives mm -hmm. uh, and puts them in the central role. Mm -hmm. This time, instead of hunting Harrison Ford, we're hunting Wesley Snipes. Yes. But the focus is not the fugitive. Mm -hmm. The focus is Tommy Lee Jones and his group of you know, investigators mm -hmm. in pursuit, which, to be fair, was a large part of what made the first movie work. Mm -hmm. But I think that our main character should have been Wesley Snipes, mm. and I don't think that it is. I think it's Tommy Lee Jones, mm -hmm. and I think that that was a mistake, but not a bigger mistake than just making the sequel to The Fugitive at all. <laughs> There's uh -huh. just a reason. This movie doesn't need to exist. It's not horrible, but its biggest sin is that there's no real point for it to exist. Well, its point is to entertain, because a lot of people had fallen in love with the Sam Gerard character played by Tommy Lee Jones. It's supposed to be an action thriller, entertaining, thirteen-year-old boy movie. <laughs> We've just seen this movie many times before. Yeah. Um, Stuart Baird made this movie, eh? Uh, you, you know what Stuart Baird also did? Tell me, Mister Beckman. He managed to convince Steven Seagal to die in a movie. <laughs> I love <laughs> him. Executive decision. <laughs> I love him for it. Yeah. Can you imagine how that conversation went? <laughs> hey, Stephen. 
<laughs> How's it going? So I, I want to put you in a in a big budget action movie that all of America is going to see. <laughs> There's only one condition, Stephen. You're going to have to die in this movie. <laughs> Shut the fuck up, Stephen. You haven't had a hit in ten years. Sign on the dotted line. Yeah. Well, <laughs> again, going, bringing it back to U.S. Marshals. I mean, I thank you to every for him for killing Steven Seagal. Yeah. Anytime I can see Steven Seagal die, I, I'll do it. That's fine. That, that, that's why I, I really <laughs> think he should get at least a Jerry Award nod or something. But anyways, but f- we're talking about a different movie, unfortunately. I know um, we, we've gotten off already. I think Zing. what the movie is trying to do is yeah. uh, make it ambiguous as to whether or not the Wesley Snipes character is actually guilty. There's a very impressive plane crash at the beginning sort of set piece. There's a couple of actually well done yeah. stunt sequences in this uh, movie. In which the initial escape happens. Yeah. Um, but we don't know that he's necessarily an innocent man this time. And I think that they thought this was a clever maneuver. Mm. No part of me at any point <laughs> thought that Wesley Snipes no. was going to be a bad guy. That misdirection was not working at all from square one. One of the flaws of this movie right off the bat is in The Fugitive we had a somewhat relatable character in Dr. Richard Kimball mm-hmm. played by Harrison Ford. He just has that persona but also, you know, he's not your stereotypical action hero. He's a man who is basically in, in in sequence or scenes that he's usually way over his head with that he uses his brain to get out of. Yeah. In U.S. Marshals, we have a completely, you know, uber agent, completely unrelatable, who we know has been set up, really. And he's and a super spy, and he can get yeah. out of any situation. At no point do we really think that if he got into physical combat with 90% of the people in the movie that he would come out on top. And I do think... I, I mean, I don't know the man, and this seems like kind of irresponsible, but I think it's a problem with Wesley Snipes, who I do think is a great actor. Mm-hmm. I don't think he likes to play weakness. Yeah. I don't think he likes it at all. Yeah. He doesn't like to play a guy who's on his heels, or is a victim, or is weak in any way. Yeah. He's got to be alpha dog. Yeah. And it hurts some of his performances. Yeah. Because we don't see any of the vulnerability. Now, maybe this super, you know, super spy killer would have no vulnerability. Yeah. But I have to believe that he's scared at some point. Well, I think... And no matter how shitty things get, yeah. he never seems to think it's not going to work out for him. Yeah. I just get the sort of sense... I mean, because Stuart Baird is actually known as a Hollywood um, movie editor than he is a director. You right. know, he had to work his way up to this gig. I really don't think he knows how to direct actors all this well. I can all, I can sort of imagine that he probably told Tommy Lee Jones, okay, same thing you did, did last in, time, you know, but overplay it just a little bit. So he manages to you know get Tommy Lee Jones to overplay the character just you know slightly in a couple of notches, but then he hires Robert Downey Jr. and tells him to underplay it. Uh, if you're gonna hire Robert Downey Jr. to be in your movie, let the man loose a little bit. And again. I don't know what they expected us to think of the Robert Downey Jr. character other than mm-hmm. he's a turncoat who wants Wesley Snipes' character dead. Yeah. Like, I'm sorry, that's a big twist and spoiler for the movie, mm-hmm. but I don't think it is at all, because mm-hmm. why else is that character there? Yeah. Downey Jr. looks bored, stoned, and is sprouting one of those terrible 90s mushroom cuts yeah, no. through the whole movie, and he just doesn't seem like he wants to be there. He like knows that this movie's kind of Well, pointless. he didn't want to be there. He was a total dick during this production. Yeah. Uh, legend has it, and this, this has been confirmed on a couple of sites, is that they had, he had shot the majority of his part, but it had disappeared right before they were sh- supposed to shoot that hospital scene that at the end of the movie where spoilers his character meets his end by right. Tom- it's the showdown with Tommy Lee Jones and he didn't want to do it well he had disappeared no one knew where he had gone or where he had went and uh, and for like four or five days all this crew was literally all the cast and crew was waiting around and then he did come back didn't explain anything didn't say sorry just said okay let's do this 
shut the scene and then disappeared again. Yeah. Now, we all know how this story ends is that he was out of Hollywood for a little while. Yeah. And he had to go clean himself up. Yeah, and this and he admitted that he was at, you know at the tailspin of his drug addiction at this point. Yeah. The end was nigh. I think he had done this and then he moved on to Ali McBeal and at that point he'd already been in jail for at least been, had had been warned. Yeah. So he was well on his downward spiral, but he, when he went to, did the promotion of the movie, he said it was like the worst experience he'd had in his film career. It was terrible, and don't see this movie. I thought I was going to make a, make a movie that you know that, I, that me and my son could go and see and watch, but it turned into a I think a soulless vapid exercise. I think yeah. end quote. He just pulled. It was just a dick move. Yeah, and even if you think that about the film, part of the deal when you get hired to do a movie like this, yeah, is that you do promotion for the movie. Yeah. And uh, you're hired to sell a premise, whatever yeah. that premise be, be it Friday the 13th or yeah. Close Encounters or whatever. You don't even have to like the premise. You're doing it as a hired job. You're getting paid good money And you're to getting do this. paid exceptionally well, not just to perform well in the film, but to promote it. Yeah. And uh, I will, you know, I, I always enjoy watching interviews with a, an actor when I can tell they didn't like the movie yeah. because they do as much or more acting in the promotion of the movie than they do in the movie itself. Yeah. They just go on about how much they love the director mm-hmm. or about how there's some really exciting sequences to the movie without out and out saying <laughs> this is a great movie. Yeah. But yeah, at this point in his career, he just had no time for that. I'm just going to be a dick because that's yeah. what I'm feeling. Um, and I guess there are worse movies that he could have <laughs> victimized. Again, mm-hmm. I think this movie set its sight on being okay, and I guess succeeds on being okay. But yeah. I was talking about uh, like uh, <laughs> Copycat being fairly unmemorable. Like yeah. I, at this point, I, I, people see U.S. Marshals; it seems to play endlessly on cable, and I wonder if people even know that it's a sequel <laughs> to The Fugitive. Yeah, <laughs> right? I know. Uh, I want to say something nice about the movie, though. Yep. There's a scene where Wesley Snipes has to escape off the top of a building. Yep. And he grabs hold of this wire and does a fairly amazing drop swing yep. onto a train car. Yep. None of that was accomplished with any CGI. Nope, that, that is no pure. There's no CGI yep. anywhere. That was genuine stunt work. Obviously, yep. it wasn't Wesley Snipes, yep. but it was a real stunt performer. And my God, after watching so much CGI... I can't tell you how refreshing that was to see. It was a real highlight to me, seeing some of this genuinely solid, spectacular stunt work. The man who needs to be credited with, with that is actually Clay Donahue Fortenst. He was the man that actually planned the jump actually, and, executed, and it. executed the jump. It took 70 days to plan, 10 hours to set up, and it's in, it's in the movie for like 7 seconds. But it's really good. It's an amazing stunt. I really do think the Academy, uh, the, the Academy, which is still considered, although I'm slapping my head that it is, you know, sort of benchmark for awards for awards for movies, really should create a best stunt performance. Uh, and, I don't and know what the mentality is. If they think that they make it competitive, that they'll take more risks and maybe more lives will be lost. Like, why don't they have that? I wonder. There is actually a, a stunt award show that The Rock hosts once a year. Oh. Um, just for stunt performers. Uh, yeah, and they have best stunt sequence and whatnot. But, but they're not invited to the ball. Here's the thing, though. It is an art form. <laughs> it is, there is an, a, a sense of artistry to it. And it's one where the performers risk their well-being. Yeah. I do think just a, a quick you know, tip of the nod. And you know, in a lot of films, you know, a lot of great action films, boast that incredible stunt sequence. Yeah. And yeah, th- there is that whole danger of that they'll try and up the ante a lot of it. But even a film like, let's say, Triple X, which is just a sort of riff on the James Bond movie it has this ridiculous amount of well-planned stunt sequences yeah. and that's how they sell their movie um, James Bond of course is infamous for having that stunt sequence in the beginning 
there's lots of even the fugitive the, in the film that this is a sequel of boasts that amazing train smash stunt sequence but also that stunt sequence dropping off of the dam yeah there's a couple of classic stunt sequences yeah and they attempt that here. Like, they yeah. earnestly try that. And again, talking about the what would be CGI today, that huge, huge high-up shot yeah. of the aftermath of the plane crash, Yeah, that's all a practical set. Yeah, And people don't think about that, like how much work and logistics, yeah. what a logistical nightmare that would be and how expensive. And, and it's totally worth it. Yeah. Because now we see these, like, like long pans over, like, going up into the sky, up into the stars from the point of impact. Yeah. But it's a cartoon. Yeah. And you can tell it's yeah. a cartoon. If you grew up watching movies that weren't cartoon, yeah. you can tell. It's interesting, though, because we spend time here now. We've been talking about The Fugitive, and we've been talking about Triple X, mm-hmm. and we've been talking about Executive Decision. But not about U.S. Marshals. We, we keep straying from U.S. Marshals. And I think that's the most damning thing that we can say about it. It's, it there's nothing about this movie that commands your attention or yeah. your memory. That said, it's not terrible. <laughs> Again, I keep on being really mean and saying, but it's it's fine. It's professionally executed. Yeah. The actors are good in it. Tommy Lee s- Jones is good at that role. It, like, yeah, 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 and it's got some homegrown talents. Sent out some love to some Kate Nelligan as well. That's right. Who shows up as uh, Tommy Lee Jones's boss? Yeah, uh, and Tommy Lee Jones again. There's a scene where, of course, one of his team members is killed in the line of duty. Yeah, spoilers. And Spoilers and uh, <laughs> people died in this movie. Yeah, <laughs> but uh, I I was really kind of surprised how emotionally affected Tommy Lee Jones' character was by that because he sort of built that character around being stoic and not quite careless. It's when he says I don't care in the Fugitive. It's not that he doesn't care about right or wrong. It's his job is to catch this guy yeah. who's on the loose. It's not his job to find out whether or not he's guilty or innocent. His job mm-hmm. is to put the cuffs on him. Right, yeah. and that's what he focuses on. Yeah, but it does get personal to him in a very real way mm. when one of his boys goes down, and mm. I kind of like that. Yeah, no, it's little things about it, but yeah, at the end of the day, it is utterly forgettable. Yeah. Um, made by a couple of turns that just really that aren't that interesting. Yeah. It's kind of unfair. It's competing against a pretty pretty thick selection of more of higher quality movies here too. Yeah. Uh, but it's the kind of it's the kind of police thriller that is very commonly made and it is representative. It is so representative as to be, you know, almost invisible. The yep. hero cop unwilling to trust the system jumps from the George Washington Bridge. Today he is laid to rest here in the cemetery at Garrison, New Jersey. So what brings you to our fair city? I heard it was a way of life out here. Thought I'd check it out for myself. What are we, uh, like the Amish now? It's a place where the sheriff wears the badge. Hey, Freddy! Hey, Fred! But the cops own the town. My jurisdiction ends at the George Washington Bridge. Ah! Freddy's police! But half the men I watch live beyond that bridge. Where no one's watching, I'm watching. Hands in the car! Thank you, the sheriff of Copland. He always dreamed of becoming one of them. I'd like you to meet Sheriff Freddy Heffler. Freddy's a hell of a guy. Well, you should call me. But now, he has uncovered something that could force him to choose between protecting his idols... Freddy's my man. ...and upholding the law. Babbage isn't dead, you know it and I know it. You don't know what you're doing, do you? Shut up. So James Mangold was interested in making a modern western. Really was. he said in the special features to my DVD of Copland. Well, he really was, though. I mean... Honestly, I didn't pick up on that the first time I watched Copland. Uh, full disclosure. Yeah. First time I watched Copland, not a fan. Okay. Like, I saw it in the theater, and I remember just the cast was just like, yeah. wow, yeah. you know? 
And like even in like small roles, <laughs> Janine Garofalo was in a supporting role. She you was know, weirdly Emmerich. hot for a while in, yeah. in, in the nineties. And it was another one of these things where she's in the movie literally for forty seconds. <laughs> it was yeah. pointless. No, um, but Ray Liotta, who I think is the most perpetually underrated and underused actor. Everybody agrees he was amazing in Goodfellas, but few people seem to give him an opportunity <laughs> to be amazing in other things. And he is consistently good. And I think he is so fucking good in this movie. Yeah. And Robert Patrick, again, in was sort of a villainous supporting role, I think. Mm-hmm. Very, very strong. Mm-hmm. All the press about the movie was Sly Stallone. And he's sort of giving this laid-back, Stallone, slurry, like, uh, it doesn't matter, I'm kind of half asleep very d- deliberate it's sort of like the lazy sheriff right mm-hmm. instead of the uh, sheriff of a small town in the middle of nowhere mm-hmm. it's the suburb of basically uh cops it's referred to as copland mm-hmm. all of the people either work in the fire department or for the police and they commute to new york island to fight the scum of the earth mm-hmm. every day and then they come back home and put their feet up mm-hmm. so he's a sheriff of a place where everybody is a cop and everybody is armed mm-hmm. so he doesn't really feel like he has much of a role other than a figurehead, right? Mm-hmm. He shows up to get cats out of trees or when, you know, there's a domestic dispute. Mm-hmm. Um, but he's looked down upon by the community. Mm-hmm. Very openly, most especially by the Harvey Keitel character. Mm-hmm. Um, Who gave him the job, though. Anyway, uh, we can get into the plot, but uh, I revisited Copland, I don't know, what it was five or six years ago. I got a cheap copy of it on DVD. Mm-hmm. And uh, I liked it so much more. Mm-hmm. And watching it again... Mm-hmm. For the podcast here, I liked it more again. It seems like a it's a way homer. It's sort of like its strengths are at least for me were not apparent upon its first pass. Mm-hmm. What it has right out the gate is a very strong cast, mm. but the story moves very slowly. Mm-hmm. I find mm-hmm. slower than I was comfortable with. Okay. I think that maybe it's one of these movies that was advertised as sort of rock'em sock'em and powerhouse cast, you know? Mm-hmm. Uh, Robert De Niro's in the movie, but for the most part, he's got bad hair, a ruffled shirt, and he's just pissed off because he can't get anything done. Mm-hmm. There's a scene in this movie where the mayor has taken him off of the Copland case, mm-hmm. and he has this huge, very De Niro speech where, put it in the box, it's over, it's done, we got nothing, we got nothing. And it felt like such a Robert De Niro scene that I was just like, didn't do it for me. Mm-hmm. Watch it the second Go time. Go to lunch. Yes. yes. Yeah. And then uh, watching it the second time, I, I felt the defeat in the character. Mm-hmm. So it's weird. Like, I like Copland, but it took two or three viewings for me to like Copland. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so it's a strange thing for me to review. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, I, I mm-hmm. like Copland, but you may have to kind of settle into it. You kind of got to catch the vibe of the movie. Well to reiterate or to sort of review your whole uh, idea that Copland is essentially Western. It's essentially High Noon. Yeah. Gary Cooper's High Noon. The, the whole ending even and spoilers when the Stallone character finally eventually does the right thing. Grabs a shotgun trying to bring in Shooter Boy, whatever yeah. his name was, played... Super Cop, they call him Michael yeah, Super, Rappaport. Michael Rappaport. In a, in a racially uh, heightened shootout on a bridge. Yeah. And, um, that starts the whole chain of that events. That starts the chain of events. Basically, uh, the super cop pulled the trigger when he didn't need to. And yeah. in an effort to cover it up, they first fake his death and then have to mm-hmm. <laughs> reel his death. Yeah. Uh, it's it's complicated. We can, the movie is will do a better job of explaining it. But basically, Stallone wants to find super cop and protect him and have him testify as to yeah. what was going on. All of the other cops at first want to protect, that, protect him 
yeah. then just want to protect themselves. Yeah. Because another cop killing another black, unarmed black guy, you know, yeah, <laughs> is bad news for everyone. Yeah. No, um, I, I sort of get the impression because like James Mangold is really, I think, an underrated talent. Mm -hmm. This is the man that has on his resume walked the line. Also, did the, so probably the better version of the Wolverine movies. And heavy. And heavy. Which is just a heartbreaking he did, indie he drama. He did this. He did this before. Yeah. He also did that girl interrupted. I never saw that one. He managed to get really good actors in a whole bunch of them, um, and to give some you know pretty meaty roles. I get the impression with Copland that there's a really really good three and a half hour director's cut. No, oh, you think? And that part of it's one of the things wrong. You know, it's not really wrong with it. It's not its fault. But they had to get this story down into like two, because it is almost two and a half hours long. This movie, but there seems to be a lot of the roles seem to be more fleshed out, and we're still seeing some good parts, some good scenes of it. But we needed more of the backstory. I would be far more intrigued. There's that scene with Ray Liotta and Harvey Keitel, and they're talking about that dead partner, which who, of course, Harvey Keitel pretty much clearly murdered. Clearly murdered. I want to know more about that, and I really got the impression that. There's, there was a lot of good stuff left on the cutting room floor, so we have a lot of good scenes. Like every actor, even the supporting roles, has some moment in the film that's theirs. Um, there's this, even there's this Arthur Nessarnell. I'm, I'm sure I'm butchering his name, but you've seen him in a lot of these sort of small supporting like character roles in these sort of cop thrillers or gangster movies. He's in Donnie Brasco as well, right. and he has a scene where he threatens Sylvester Stallone when he gets in the back of the car, and he's actually an, an actual ex-cop. That's one of the reasons why he's hired. Yeah. But just that scene alone. It's a really good, well-acted scene, and there's lots of them. Even Harvey Keitel gets that. Get, Fuck, I hate Harvey Keitel in this movie. I mean, it's a great performance, but yeah. his character is so terrible. Yeah, no, no. I hate him so much. Yeah, Peter Berg gets some gets some scenes. Yeah, this is one of the last Peter Berg movies that I remember before he just went full-on director. You don't yeah. see him acting so much lately. Yeah, like I said, Robert Patrick's really, he's got some good meat to his... Uh, bit um kathy moriarty has a good little bit as harvey keitel's very unfaithful wife yeah annabelle Sciarra, do you remember her uh -huh. you, there was a time where she was you know some you know top a grade a talent actually saw whispers in the dark not too recently yeah. I mean, the, the, as yeah. is typical with the cops and robbers yeah. format the women do take a back seat yes uh, like i mentioned annabelle Sciarra is yeah. this woman that slides in love with but can never have yeah and that's it you know, like yeah. you say, Harvey Keitel's wife is a beleaguered wife. Yeah. That's it. Janine Garofalo is a cop who feels she's over her head and then quits. Yeah. Like, they don't have much to do. Like, <laughs> like I said, I really do get the impression that, that this would have been better served as a TV miniseries than a full-length feature yeah, film. I, I might go to a miniseries before I would say adding an hour, because I don't think the Copland needs another hour to it. But it could be a TV show, or it could be something that, you know, sprawls a little yeah. more, and that might give it, you know, a wire feeling or, or something that has a little bit more air to it. Yeah. That's uh, why it, 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 it stops from being great and ends up just being good. And considering, even at, at the time, the pedigree of that cast, it almost was saying, look, this should be an almost critically acclaimed Oscar caliber. Like, you've got you've got two-thirds of, of, of Goodfellas in here, buddy. Yeah. And, I mean, you seem to be quite harsh on Sylvester Stallone. He does give a really good performance. Well, I was going to come back to that at the issue of weighing an unpopular opinion. I think he's good in the movie, but I don't understand what the fuss was about. 
the whole thing about the character is that he wasn't being Rambo. He wasn't just pulling out his gun and shooting yeah. people. He was just kind of laid back and whatever. I think he it, takes shit and he takes shit and he takes shit yeah. until finally he's mad as hell and he's not going to take it anymore. Yeah. But I, I wasn't like overly blown away by the hoops he was jumping through as an actor. In a way, he's a very passive character until mm-hmm. the last 20 minutes of he's the He's a very low status character. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. So uh, it's not a flashy role. It's not badly executed. But I, I honestly think that Stallone is overpraised for this movie. It's not bad in the movie. He's good in it. But like people were saying, this is get him an Oscar. This should revitalize his career. Mm-hmm. No, no. I think the redeeming aspect of the movie is, especially for me, the first time I watched it, mm-hmm. is the climactic gun battle. Yeah. Uh, we're going to go into spoiler territory here because I think it's important for the aesthetic of why the last scene works. Mm-hmm. The uh, sheriff is deaf in one year for in one ear because he heroically dived into the river to help save. Uh, people in a car accident and yeah. it cost him the, the hearing in his one ear and when the evil cops finally get fed up with him fucking with their you know, evil plans mm-hmm. one of the first things that happen when they steal super cop from his custody mm. is they f- discharge a gun mm. right next to his good ear mm. and render him deaf mm-hmm. so when he trudges up that hill with his shotgun mm. to kill these guys because there's no other way mm-hmm. to deal with them there's literally yeah. no other way to deal with them they are cops and they are insulated and they are protected yeah. and he's not going up there to talk to them yeah. he can't talk to them what's the last line that he says to Harvey Keitel I can't remember I can't hear you Harvey Keitel has been shot and he's laying on the floor bleeding out and he's screaming at, at Stallone you fucking coward you fucking son of a bitch yeah. and he can't hear him he's just looking down at him saying I can't hear you yeah he was not there to arrest anybody. Yeah. This is where it becomes the Wild West. Yeah. This is where the old sheriff finally, yeah. you know. And it's so well set up. There's a scene where he mm-hmm. tries to talk reason like a fool to the Harvey Keitel character. And it's like, yeah. this is ugly. This is really ugly. And it's a mm-hmm. fucking mess. And it's got everybody at each other's throats. Why don't we just move this across the river? We bring in the super cop. We bring in a lawyer. Mm-hmm. And we talk this shit out so that there's no more blood. Mm-hmm. And Harvey Keitel all but laughs in his face. Mm-hmm. That's a great plan, but that's the plan of a boy. We're men. You are a boy, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. That's basically what he says to him. Yeah, but it would if they brought Supercop in, that would start the whole domino effect in that whole community. It would expose the corruption, right? Because yeah. Supercop would probably cut a deal to get himself. Well, not only that, but it would sort of you know how did you escape where you've been hiding for yeah. the past? Why yeah. did what did you fake your left? Like yeah. Harvey Keitel had claimed that the kid had jumped off the bridge originally, yeah. like. There was. It would have been not an easy thing to clean up. Yeah. And it would have been sticky, and it would have been blood. But nobody would have died. I think that is Stallone's point. Yeah. Right. But he he like uh, he must not have realized who he was talking to because well, Harvey Keitel was always going to go for the violent solution. Mm-hmm. Like that's just how he gets shit done. Yeah. I think it's a really good movie, and it's interesting that, like I said, every time I watch it, I like it a little bit more. Mm-hmm. But that's kind of damning praise too. To me, like I said, it's one of those good movies that stopped short of being great. Yeah. And it should have been more. I mean, it's got a lot of good things in it. Ray Liotta, I think, almost, almost steals the movie. I think he does. Yeah. I really do. There's a scene where... Because Ray Liotta's on the outs with the crooked cops, too. Yeah. Uh, yeah. He's tired of their bullshit, but he's also kind of one of them. Yes. Well, yeah, he's <laughs> so stuck. he's not going to rock the boat, but he's no longer playing ball, either. He just yeah. wants to retire and fucking ignore everybody. Yeah. 
but he sees the same thing the same way that the Robert De Niro sees in the Sylvester Stallone character this is the one guy who's positioned in a place where he could actually affect something he could do something possibly mm-hmm. he could stir up this hornet's nest so that we can actually mm-hmm. look, you know get get people caught yeah the difference is, I think Robert De Niro sees it as a good way to open up the case again. He sees it as a furthering of his career. And Ray Liotta sees it as a sort of, almost a redemption. Mm-hmm. There's a fantastic scene where he sits down with uh, Sly Stallone and he tips a beer can sideways mm-hmm. and starts running, your buddy's, your buddy's shot and he's bleeding out, you got to get to him as quickly as possible. Mm-hmm. Everyone will say the quickest place is to go a straight line. But you got to do the parallels. He has this whole speech, mm-hmm. and he's basically telling, without telling him, by all means investigate it, by all means look into it, but be fucking careful. Mm-hmm. And it's a great speech, and mm-hmm. the it's a speech where there's another conversation happening underneath it. Yeah. And it seems like that that sort of speak to how truly great this movie almost is. Mm-hmm. And uh, because of that, I I I, I like it a lot. Mm-hmm. But I, I can't. I condition my recommendation. You have to really be prepared for a long, slow cop drama. Mm-hmm. And I think it was kind of advertised as something a little bit more actiony. I think it was righteously advertised. Um, I, I think they were t- trying to do this sort of big actor heavy showcase, which yeah. it definitely has some of that. Yeah. that, that's, that that's what it is. Um, I just am sort of frustrated that it could have been more. You want more. I want more. So why do they call you Big Evil? Because my evil's big. You're my brother. If anything happened to you, I would take care of your kids. Word is, we got a hit on y'all, man. Y'all been greenlit. We're cops. Everybody wants to kill us. Whoa, 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 whoa. 13 X-ray 13, suspect running on foot. Look at me. We're shooting our way out of here, bro. Okay. On three, dude. You're gonna empty your mag and run. One, two, three! So, uh, change of location. We are now road tripping it. We're working our way back to the Paris of the Prairies that is Saskatoon, Saskatchewan. Um, but we've got some another review that we have to finish up and uh, a podcast that we need to clean up so because we're committed damage yeah so hopefully this sounds okay there'll be a little bit of road noise for our review of end of watch um from david ayer who's about to uh, unleash upon the world suicide squad you this is one of those interesting uh forced perspective dramas in a lot of ways found footage it's almost. not it's not completely that. Yeah. Uh, Jake Gyllenhaal and Michael Pena play. Don't you mean Gyllenhaal? Gyllenhaal. Like Gyllenhaal. That's right. Gyllenhaal. Uh, they are two cops in Los Angeles. And who's the other one? Michael Pena. Thank you. I said. Did you? I did. I did not hear. Two you. cops uh, who were working in you know gang central in Los Angeles. Yes. Arguably not only the th- most thankless job in law enforcement, yeah. but some of the more hated people in law enforcement. The reputation of the LAPD is not super great, right? I would think it would take a special person to work that kind of job in that kind of community. You'd think. Yeah. Jake Killenhoddy is also going to school and as part of his class project or whatever, he is videotaping a lot of his day-to-day experiences including yeah. into, you know the back and forth with his partner yeah 
And for me, it's the back and forth with his partner, the relationship between those two cops yeah. that really anchors the movie. Well, at the end of the day, this is very much a two-character piece. It yeah. really is. There's a lot of people that sort of breeze in and breeze out of the movie, and yeah. they're fine and everything, but really the movie belongs to these two guys. Yeah. I think where it gets a little creaky for me is the force perspective. Okay. Because... They use the dash cams. They use, you know, Jake Gyllenhaal's, you know, yeah. camera. Yeah. But then other times it's just the verite style. Yeah. My buddy Matt and I talked about this in a different movie called The Quiet Ones. Yeah. Where sometimes it was the camera that was filming the activity. Yeah. And then sometimes it was deliberately shaky, you know, green grass type of camera. Work. Yeah. And for me, pick an alley. Fair. You know. Uh, you're either a found footage movie or you're, you aren't. Yeah. I, in a way, I have a Diary of the Dead reaction to this movie in that the found footage stuff is really distracting. So when I watch it again, I have to just dismiss the found footage stuff and just look at it as a verite style piece. Okay. And uh, So it's filmed as if there was a camera crew following them around, but really, yeah. Yeah. there's not a camera crew following them around. Well, I will say out of the plethora of found footage films that have saturated the market, to me, this this style is one of the more tolerable, tolerable, tolerable. My goodness, tolerable ones, where I wasn't taken out of it. I had that problem with, say, Cloverfield, mm -hmm. that we reviewed a while back, where I did actually let the performances and the story happen, so it wasn't as distracting or dramatic. Um, I mean, you can tell when the camera shifts, whether it's you know the police cam or you know. Hall's video. But they still have establishing shots, and yeah. they still have straight cinema during, you know, street chases. Yes. And stuff like that. Right? Yeah. So, yeah. the format's very loose, and you're allowed to do that, but yeah. uh, when you start out with this forced perspective angle, you know, people tend to either lock into it or not, and if yeah. you're locking into it, there's a lot of shots that just don't don't follow that milieu. Yeah. Um, it's, it's a small point. I think that, that that makes the movie feel authentic. Yeah. I've heard so many people talk about how this is like the most authentic feeling cop movie ever. Oh. And uh, I think you gotta be careful with that. It's yeah. authentic feeling. Yeah. I think that the relationship, the camaraderie, and the sort of yeah. booyah, we're, we're here to do good yeah. sort of mentality that you'd have to have to do yeah. the job. Yeah. I believe that. But the amount of mayhem and shit that they encounter in a three day period. Yeah. That's movie. That's very movie. Yeah, that's movie. And the very movie's movie. trying to hide that in, again, all of this verite style, all of this forced perspective work. Yeah. But if it was shot straightly, I think people would say this movie is kind of ridiculous in the amount of shit that happens to these two guys, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. Even in Los Angeles, you know, the cops don't have their guns out every day. Yeah. Right? It would be weird. Yeah. Yep. So I, I take issue with people saying that this is a very authentic movie. It yeah. may feel authentic, but I, I don't. Well, don't that sort of brings me to kind of full circle to uh, David Ayer. Ayer? Am I saying that correctly? Uh, sure. A-Y-E-R. Yeah. Um, when I first saw a couple of interviews with him, and this is the man that has written the screenplay for Training Day, Fast and the Furious, SWAT, Street Kings. Yeah, none of that uh, has impressed me yet. Sabotage. Nope. Um... <laughs> I think he also did U571, or at least co-wrote it. Okay, so End of Watch is clearly his best work. Yeah. But this is a guy that his bread and butter are, you know, modern-day cop crime thrillers. Unpopular opinion? Yeah. 
Training Day might be one of the most overrated movies of that decade. Yeah. I don't think it's a bad movie. Yeah. I think it's an overrated movie. Yeah. It's sort of like The Fugitive was in the 90s. It's a good movie. I don't know that it's an Oscar movie. Everybody needed to relax a little bit of The Fugitive. Right? I think it allowed Denzel Washington to really, you know, kind of go let loose. Um, but David Ayer, like, the first interviews I saw of him, I, I kind of had this whole thought of separating the art and the artist. Because he, he kept on coming back, especially, the, you know, in, the, in his younger days, in his interviews, he kind of came across as, yeah, man, I grew up in the street. I got a real John Peters vibe from him, where he seemed very insecure and wanted to show how tough he was and how true an artist he was. Now, I've seen, since, you know, watching it of Watch Again and seeing more about him, I've gotten a lot more respect. I see my respect for him has grown. He doesn't seem quite as he needs to prove himself but, um, in his interviews. And I, I sort of respect the methods that he goes to get his casts involved. Uh, he's very hands-on, very activity project oriented. And a lot of the actors talk about how intense his training methods are. Apparently, like one of the weeks of training they had for Furies, they basically the whole cast of the tank okay. fought each other. Yeah. Well, I'm gonna let's let's be simple, let's be disciplined here and try yeah. and actually talk about the movie we're reviewing. Well, but, we are. We uh, are. We the are. The same thing happened with Jake Gyllenhaal and yeah. Michael Pena. They yeah. they they went on ride-alongs yeah. and they immersed themselves in the world of Los Angeles. Yeah. Again, to give the whole movie this illusion of authenticity. Yeah. I think that's and, and again, I still like the movie and enjoy the movie, but I yeah. take issue with it being in a quote-unquote authentic cop movie. Um, I want to like David Ayer, and yeah. I'm sure that this movie that he's about to come out with, The Suicide Squad's going to yeah. be a big hit, whether yeah. it's good or not, but yeah. uh, I'm not necessarily excited about the prospect of the next David Ayer movie. Yeah. Like, you just listed off his credits, most of which I've seen, but yeah. I'm not particularly enthusiastic about. Yeah. By that scale, having not seen Suicide Squad yet, yeah. End of Watch is his best movie, and as yeah. good as it is, I yeah. think it's flawed. Yeah. I think that Jake Gyllenhaadi and Michael Pena save this movie. Yeah. Because I believe their relationship. Yes. I, 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 I believe that they genuinely love each other and would willingly die for each other. Yeah, and I think the process um, that Ayer put them through, that trust and relationship was formed and bombed and it was needed for this story to work. And I think Ayer was smart enough to realize that. But in the end of the day, again, it's a police cliche, right? Yeah. But right. all of these movies. I'm sorry, the minority partner who's got a pregnant wife, yeah. who's funny and who we like, yeah. is not going to fucking live through the movie. Yeah, he just isn't. Yeah, he just isn't. Yeah, and that's not a surprise. In fact, it's a cliche. Yeah. And in a movie that's trying to be so cutting edge, I don't know. I don't know. I would have let Jake Gyllenhaal take the bullet personally. Yeah, you know. Um, but at the same time, for me bitching about that, when Jake Gyllenhaal gives a gets up to give the speech at his he, partner's funeral. He was my brother, yeah. All he's able to get out is he is my brother. Yeah. And it was one of those things where if he'd have given a big, big speech about the importance of police work and, yeah. and, you know, how this man died a hero, the whole movie would have fucking scented of a woman, right? Yeah. Like, it would yeah. have just exploded in its third act. Yeah. The fact that it was just a purely emotional reaction. Yeah. All he was able to say is that he was my brother, and then he just completely falls apart. Yeah. That is the one truly authentic feeling moment in the film. Even in 
the final climactic moments when the gangsters have put a hit out on these guys because they've yeah. been fucking with the cartels. Yeah. I think that the power of that scene is underwritten because uh, these cartoonishly evil gangsters are smugly walking away from murdering two police officers yeah. when a bunch of other cop cars pull up and they get CGI shot to death. Yeah. Like the squib hits, yeah. and again on a movie that they had a lot of money, a lot of skill. I don't know why they would have such bad CGI effects in such an important scene, mm-hmm. arguably the most climactic scene of the movie. One of our characters has just been killed. Yeah. Another one of our characters is dying, for all we know. Yeah. And then we get cartoon blood splatters on the people responsible. Yeah, that seems very post-production and running out of time in a lot of ways. Um, I can't decide. Because Gyllenhaal has an opening monologue where he says, I am the law. I did not make the law. I just enforce it. I can't decide whether that is piss-poor writing or it's a monologue that suits that character so well that you can you would you would believe that someone, a man like that, would talk like that and believes that way of thinking. I think one of the many problems with police work, like yeah. I've said in the past, is that you're dealing with people having the worst days of their lives on a regular basis. Yeah. You see people at their bottom a yeah. lot. Yeah. And it, it can affect you. It can change you. It oh, can make you I, 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 motherfucker. I, I say this. So, I, I, I think that it's easier to have a ma- mantra that you can tell yourself. Because sometimes when the people are, call, are, are calling you on, you know, why don't you go fight some crime? Why are you fucking me with over yeah. this? They're not even exactly wrong. Yeah. But that's your job. Your yeah. job is to enforce the law. If you see somebody breaking the law, yeah. that's your job is to go write them that ticket or put that yeah. cuffs on them. Yeah. And uh, he just goes on a moment-to-moment basis that way. Yeah. But everything is all in the laws. It's not on him, right? Yeah. And I, I understand that psychology completely. Whether or not it's clumsy writing, I guess we could make that argument. It just seems so chachy, the monologue. And it, He it, fucking it, loves being a cop. He does. There's, he does. There's that weird, almost militaristic angle that a lot of people in law enforcement do have. Like, yeah. I, I kind of get it. It feels a little bit more jarhead than LAPD. Yeah. But I get it. No, and, and like I said, I can't decide whether it is really sort of chachy, piss-poor writing, or a monologue that is so suited to that particular character. And this, and that whole sequence ends with him and his partner unleashing a hail of bullets on a bunch of thugs, yeah. which I think is quite powerful and says a lot about these two characters that see themselves as sort of rodeo cowboys in a lot of ways. Well, at the same time, if we're talking about the same scene, like, they're shooting their way out. Yes. They weren't shooting the guys to do police work. Yeah. They were shooting at those guys because if they didn't, they were fucking dead. Yeah, no, it's a, well, as the captain says, you know, it's a homicide, but it's a justifiable homicide. And that's, that's something that made me kind of, you know, turn my head when that line is said. It's like, yeah, well, yes, you are taking their lives. That's a delicate thing to walk, especially in this day and age where Absolutely. In, in the United States, a lot of police... Not even the United States, Canada in the past couple of years, there's been some real a lot of cases. A bad of, press for law enforcement. Yeah. And a lot of bad, bad press that they kind of earned. So Yes and no. It feels yes a, and no. It feels a little bit weird to have an almost propaganda piece on the LAPD. Yeah. At this time. Yeah. But that said, I have a lot of respect for anybody who risks their life to yeah. you know at least in their head try to make the world a better place. Yeah. I am not. I'm not one of these people who resent police officers. In no. fact, I think 
think they deserve no. our respect. Yeah. Um, but I do not think they are infallible. And no. I think that in some ways this movie might approach that. No, I think it. I think it shows them. They're human beings. Yeah. They're yeah. human beings, but like almost saintly uh, in the way that they're portrayed. Saintly? Nah, I don't know. I would say that we just want to make the world better, and we're willing to risk our lives to make the world better. When we meet these two people, they are very high testosterone, jokey. They've just wiped two people out, and they sort of seem like, and they're coming back off the investigation, and they sort of seem like no remorse. Yeah. And through their journey, through this movie, they come to realize it's really only at the end when Jalal has lost his partner. Do I think he truly realized that that sort of yippie mentality that he has at the beginning of the story will get him killed? But his yippie mentality wasn't what got him killed. It yeah. was pulling over the wrong car and kicking over the kicking in the wrong door, well, which well, was their job. Yeah, well, it wasn't only that, but I think it was him wanting to investigate. That's what sort of put the whole target, because once they discover that whole house full of bodies, that's when that phone call was made from the drug lord. Um, you kind of got the impression it was really only a matter of time for these two, uh, that they're so in love with themselves and that job, that that kind of persona, like, they were very good cops. You got the impression, like, they got awards, they were very good at their job, but you kind of, and I think Ayrd would agree with me on this, is it was only a matter of time before one of them would have been dead, if not both. Well, I don't think I have the exact same approach on that, but I mean, I guess neither of us can crawl inside Ayrd's head. Yeah. For me, it's a well-made police actioner, yeah. but it's the performances that really make it worthwhile. Yeah. I kind of think the screenplay's a little rocky, to be honest. Okay. I think that the cast brings it up a notch. Yeah. I will recommend the movie, and I do recommend the movie, but yeah. I'm less enthusiastic than most people seem to be. Um, I do like the villains in this place. They are sort of cartoon characters. They're absolutely ways. cartoon characters. Yeah. Um, there's something about them, though, that makes me very really even not. less real than the cops in that respect you don't think those those kind of people exist though they do but I you know I go back to my acting exercises typically villains don't think of themselves as villains they think of yeah. themselves as badass or cool or rebellious not even these cult. guys seem to celebrate their evil I mean yeah he's big evil why do you call yourself big evil a good line but not for the real world yeah because my evil's big. Yeah, no, I know, and I get that. These and, and those gang members seem like seem to come out of straight out of a sort of nineteen nineties, nineteen eighties action. And film. again, it, yeah. it it hurts the authenticity that they're striving for. It yeah. really does. Yeah, yeah. Um, I really like End of Watch. Um, I do sort of stop short of calling it a modern cop thriller classic, but I do think it is quite quite good. Um, I do like Michael Pena a lot in this. But I like both of them quite a bit. Um, I like Ayer's process of how he like he likes to try and immerse his actors in almost in a kind of boot camp. I respect that, and I sort of get the impression from the other actors talking about his process that yeah, when you show up on a David Ayer set, you come up to work, like you come to work, yeah. uh, and you get fully committed, and he knows what he wants, and he knows how to get there. So. I'm curious to see what this man comes up with. 
I do think we haven't seen his best work yet. Um, I think he's not untalented, but I would argue maybe slightly overrated.
but it's bathed in such wonderful light. It knows where it comes from. It knows it is a black exploitation flick, sort of a la damn the man crime thriller. It also has the brilliant idea of casting an uncharacteristic Jeff Goldblum as your villain. And there's a lot of really good performances uh, in it. And it has and it stars a guy named Larry. Like, how could you hate that? <laughs> so at number two, I have Deep Cover. And there should be no question about it. L.A. Confidential is by far the best film of this bunch. Um, it's a wonderful film noir, ambitious, um, ambitious novel to adapt, beautifully directed by Curtis Hansen, who likes to switch things up and still work, with, work within uh, the studio system. Hasn't made a movie in a little while, actually. Yeah, but, it's been a while, hasn't it? Yeah. But it's such a wonderful movie to watch from beginning to, beginning to end. It's James Elroy who's a pretty good novelist. It does feature a very young Russell Crowe and Guy Pearce and a very young, ambitious Kevin Spacey, Kim Basinger. I love David Strathairn. We never, we didn't really talk about him at all. He's he's always, always good. This movie is just mwah. So at number one, I have L.A. Confidential. Well, um, we, we started to get closer up at the end. There was a little while there where I worried that we were going to go zero for six. Oh, wow. Part of me thought you were going to give Deep Cover number one because you kept on sucking its dick so much, not only on the podcast, uh, but in, uh, in our, our other conversations. Uh, yeah. Um, again, it's a pretty different list, but I, I, I'm not passionate about it, so I, yeah. I don't think we're going to have any real fights. Yeah. I personally put Copycat in sixth place, Okay. but for the same reason you said. It's just another serial killer thriller. And that is kind of all. So you would you would put it above U.S. Marshals? Okay. The reason I think U.S. Marshals is another derivative action sort of chase picture. Yeah. But there's fewer of them than there is of the copycat. Is there? Is I would there argue, really? oh. especially in the '90s, fucking a, like uh, police procedurals versus Psycho Killer. I think the market. I think Psycho Killer's got got the market, man. I really do. Um, I'm not, like I said, passionate about either of the movies, but you know, Tommy Lee Jones is good at delivering as Tommy Lee Jones. Um, you know, Robert Downey Jr. may have been a cocksword while he was making the movie, but he makes a pretty, you know, decent villain. Uh, it holds my attention. It does not offend me, and uh, it feels vaguely fresher than Copycat, but okay. I'm not passionate about it. Like I said, it's okay. just okay. there. It is. The one that you're gonna get uh, pissed off about is End of Watch. Okay. Because I'm putting that in fourth position. Okay. Because it's one of those frustrating movies that is so almost there. Yeah. It's like 80% there. Yeah. The performances are fucking awesome. Yeah. But it's a little bit up its own ass a little bit too. And I it, think... It's just like, if you could just swerve a little bit to the left or right, that I would be with everyone else saying this is one of the better cop movies I've seen in recent memory. I'm glad they didn't go with the, the melodramatic funeral scene. We needed something. But it seemed like such an odd way to end it. I mean... It's showing that it's a character piece at that point. Yeah. And it was just basically, instead yeah. of a big pretentious fire and brimstone speech, yeah. it was like, this is who that guy was, and isn't yeah. it sad that he's no longer with us? Yeah. Again, I go back to the problem. Within five minutes of spending time with that character, no part of me believed he would live through the movie. Yeah. And in that way, this cutting-edge cop movie is every cop movie you've ever seen before, yeah. just with better performances and interesting style. Uh, so in three is where I put the controversial Copland. I mean, it's like I said, every time I watch the movie, I like it a little bit more than the previous time. Mm -hmm. But most people aren't going to give a two and a half hour movie three at bats, right? Yeah. So I think if you just know what you're getting into, this is a slow paced, well acted modern western. 
if you can if you can get on that groove, I think it earns third place. Okay. But if you can't get on that groove, maybe it'll be lower down the list for you. Yeah. That was the tricky one. The, yeah. the Copland and End of Watch again. Yeah. 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 But we're back to familiar places here because I think comfortably in second place I can put Deep Cover. Yep. The style in that movie is so rich. I love yeah. Bill Duke as an actor and a, a director. Yeah. Like Even though I don't love all of his movies, I love the amount of style and energy he brings to them. Yeah. And I will watch a Bill Duke joint any day of the week. Yeah. Um, Larry Fishburne, as I shall always call him, yeah. is just absolutely fantastic in the lead role, and it's full of colorful characters. Mm-hmm. It's it, it, the style elevates it in a way. Yeah, absolutely, it, it's like almost becomes style as substance. In that, yeah. a lot of the scenes in this movie we've seen before, yeah. just not this cool. The execution is so well done on a generic undercover cop story yeah. that. You get you, to me. You, you usually look pack, usually look past some of the flaws of the movie. And then yes, of course, in first place, and I think that was a pretty comfortable, easy win. Yeah. Uh, L.A. Confidential. I'm not like you in that the top three could switch any day. Yeah. I think that L.A. Confidential was comfortably the best movie of this bunch. Yeah. But uh, definitely the top four, I think, I'd say is worth a look. And uh, Copycat or U.S. Marshals. That's a movie that if you're sick at home on a Sunday afternoon and it's on, you yeah. can watch and it won't offend you. Yeah. But do not go out of your way to seek them out. Yeah. But I can't get passionately angry about them either. They're professionally made. They're well enough executed. I just, you know, I ask in a little more and they had some steep competition. Yeah. Thank you so much for doing yet another episode of Rankin Review. One day, Larry. One day, I shall <laughs> no, I just get the... The sheer amount of episodes you've done, you should have either won or lost by now. <laughs> See, you're not making me feel better about I, myself. I thought, now. like, we, generally speaking, seem to have the same taste in movies, but. We do. This is like, what, your 10th or 11th show? See, you, you just, you're not helping me feel better, Larry. <laughs> uh, I'm not saying you're wrong. I'm not saying I'm wrong. I'm saying one of these days. It's going to line up. I'm going to say, you should listen to our old podcasts and see how close we are in a lot of them in a lot of ways. Yeah. And I would would beg of you to almost rethink some of your lists. I haven't cheated yet, and I ain't going to. Alrighty. (laughs) The only time I've ever questioned it is the the Shutter Island Fight Club thing I questioned. But we'd already already gone off course before that happened, I think. Fair enough. Anyway, thank you again for doing it. Thank You're you welcome. again for the trip to Edmonton. Thank you for having me. And the, the Tragically Hip concert and the, the, you know, visiting ghosts of the past. It's It's been emotional and it's been real. And we managed to squeeze a podcast in. Yo. So that was six films on good cops and bad cops, ranked by your host and random Canadian Larry Parsons and his regular guest, Mr. Lee Beckman. If you think we got that wrong, you do have recourse. You could send me a message at rankinreview at gmail.com. That's R-A-N-K-N-R-E-V-I-E-W at gmail.com. I would welcome it. 
Please seek out the show on iTunes and on Facebook. Please tell that other movie lover in your life about the show. And please keep listening to Rank and Review. You have fantastic taste in podcasts.